dress only in attire specially sanctioned by MIB Special Services. You'll conform to the identity we give you. Eat where we tell you, live where we tell you. From now on, you'll have no identifying marks of any kind. You will not stand out in any way. Your entire image is crafted to leave no lasting memory with anyone you encounter. You are a rumor, recognizable only as deja vu and dismissed just as quickly. You don't exist, you were never even born. Anonymity is your name. Silence your native tongue. You are no longer part of the system. You are above the system, over it, beyond it. We're them, we're they. We are the men in black. You know what the difference is between you and me? I make this look good. Welcome to Ramblin', an Amblin' podcast. We are the best-kept secret in the galaxy. We monitor and examine all Amblin' entertainment activity on the Earth. We're your first, last, and only line of Amblin' appraisal. We live in secret. We exist in shadow. And we occasionally dress in black. I'm one half of your host, Agent A. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the other half. I couldn't say that I'm Agent J because that's already taken. Uh, I, I, I'll take G. I'll be G. I'll be Agent, <laughs> Agent G. Just how does it work? And welcome to our episode on Barry Sonnenfeld's Men in Black, a sci-fi action comedy released in the summer of 1997. With a script by Ed Solomon, based on the Malibu Marvel comic line <laughs> of the same name. <laughs> <laughs> we're very excited about this episode. <sighs> and we're even more excited to be later joined by film critic and presenter... And host extraordinaire, all round, yes. <laughs> covering a lot of bases. Uh, we will be joined later in the episode by the wonderful Anna Anna mm. Bogutsky, <laughs> one of the more illustrious cover teachers in the Komodo Mayo stable. <laughs> in fact, uh, recently she covered the show with former guest Rihanna Dillon and did a fabulous job. Indeed, they did chemistry off the charts. And we look very much, very much look forward to sharing that chat with you. Yes, indeed. Um, but before we get to that, we've got a lot of business up top. You're very excited for this one. Uh, mate, I'm, <laughs> I'm palpitating. I think Back to the Future aside, this is the one that I've been the most excited about because, Ooh. well, uh, I guess because it's just you and me for the start, I can just barrel straight into it, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Because this is one of my first big cultural cinema memories mm. i think um, in terms of something we were alive for the phenomenon of mm-hmm. and could experience in the cinema firsthand and this is one of the first films i remember seeing in the cinema christ which is very exciting i don't think i, could, I don't think i would have <laughs> uh, seen it in the cinema <laughs> i it's one on video for me and it used to scare me a lot mm. oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 
This is, and we've spoken about it in previous episodes. I forget which one. Probably several. Yeah. But this was a summer of, of quite scary blockbusters with this yeah, and like, Lost it, World. Yeah, the upper Even uh, Bean, the ultimate <laughs> disaster movie. Yeah, that feels It's quite scary when uh, Whistler's mother painting, when her face melts when he uses the um, paint thinner to clear his... Anyway, this is... We don't want to go too much into Bean. <laughs> Did you want to, one day, uh, on the Patreon, along with Crocodile Daddy, <laughs> get Bean the be... ultimate disaster movie yeah. involved? <laughs> well, the reason that I... That, that is actually semi-relevant, because I remember I, I saw the trailers on TV, or TV spots for Men in Black, and very flashy, very kid-friendly, ostensibly, going by TV spots. And the marketing campaign, as we'll touch upon later on, was pretty widespread and relentless for this film. So it really targeted... Mm-hmm. I think I was four at the time. I was a very young... Was I even four? Yes, I was four. Four and a half-ish. Yeah. So maybe a bit, a bit too young, but still the marketing did single out. I can remember the Happy Meal toys. There was like yeah. a, a UFO that you blew into and then it yeah. spanned. Yeah. <laughs> I can but remember then, the song on top of the pops a lot. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but then I remember certain TV spots would show more of Edgar the Bug, particularly when he, mm. when he goes, ah, that matter, and pulls his face back. And that's terrifying. Yeah, as a kid. I used to have nightmares about yeah. Edgar the Bug when I was a kid. So my parents tried on several occasions to take me to see Men in Black and would always get through the queue and I'd see like the card book out of the poster and think, oh no, I'm too scared, I can't do it anymore. <laughs> so they took me to go see Mr. Bean instead. <laughs> that was the sort of um, the buffer. The buffer, Bean buffer. That was, that was fat and my... Ultimately, when I did go and see this in the cinema, my dad had to lie to me about what we were doing. Because oh. he knew that I wanted to see it. He wanted to see it as well. And uh, so he lied to me about where we were going. And it wasn't until we were in there and the BBFC card came up and said Men in Black PG. Like, oh, dad. And I was really scared. But I remember, I'm, it's the first memory I have of, I mean, this and Hercules, which I also saw in the cinema, around the same, around the same time. Movie. Just feeling completely swept up and just that, elect, that rush that you get mm-hmm. and coming out and just quoting all the lines and Say, I love the bit when this happens. I love, I love, when this happens, it's so good. And we went home and we told we told my mum how much we enjoyed it and how great it was. And it's the first memory I have of that experience. Yeah. So it's a That's very. Nice. I'm getting giddy right now just talking about it. Well, so what was so you didn't see it in the cinema? No, I've, I think I've rented it on video. Mm-hmm. I remember more specifically the trailer for Men in Black because it was on the Matilda VHS. So oh, damn. <laughs> used to play in front of that quite I a bit. IMS Division 6. <laughs> there is no Division 6. <laughs> With a bit of Elliot Goldenpool's score for Demolition Man as the backup track. <laughs> is that the... Boom, 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 boom. Yeah. Dun, 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 that dun, sounds dun, a bit dun, like dun, 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 the sort of... <laughs> that sounds a bit like the Bean score as well. Should have known we'd have... That was on the year 1997. You wouldn't be able to get through without talking about Bean. <laughs> so you still have a trailer for it on the yeah, Matilda video. Yeah, and that, I used to think it looked like the coolest film yeah. ever made. Still and does. Then, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember watching it for the first time when I, it was, I don't think it was 97. It, would mm. be, it must have been a year or two later mm. when we did rent it. Yeah. And it did scare me a lot and I couldn't yeah. then come back to it for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, Men in Black 2 was the first film I owned on DVD. Yes, or one, oh, one, of, one of my first I think Spider-Man too. actually was the first. But For like... me, it was Men in Black 2 on Crocodile Dundee. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a while, Mick. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, shall I get you even more giddy? Uh, yeah. Would you like my synopsis? <laughs> oh, oh God, take us there. I had fun with this one. <laughs> it's a fun movie. Yeah. <laughs> I 
have you ever felt like someone you knew is from another planet? Well, chances are you were probably right. <laughs> As it turns out, here on our little planet Earth, aliens live among us in secret, going about their normal everyday lives as pawn shop owners, elementary school teachers, maverick film producers, and pugs named Frank. <laughs> the Earth has become a politically neutral zone for alien refugees. All their activity is policed and monitored but on the planet by the men in black, or the MIB for short. A highly funded, unofficial branch of the government that employ employs an ignorance-is-bliss approach to keeping the truth of extraterrestrial life on Earth away from the public. Under the MB MIB's watchful eye, humankind and the multitude of alien species who have come to call Earth home coexist peacefully, for the most part. Veteran MIB agent K, played by Tommy Lee Jones, operates out of New York City. And... <laughs> and is in need of a new partner. He's belie he believes he's found the ideal candidate in NYPD Detective James Edwards, played by Will Smith. Just ask, what does NYPD stand for? <laughs> he's a knock your punk ass down. <laughs> yes, it does. Uh, James Edwards, who successfully chased down an unusually agile criminal. Spoiler, he was an alien. <laughs> Uh, who whom gave James a grave warning about the impending end of the world before jumping off of the roof of the Guggenheim to their death. After blinking sideways. After blinking sideways. After successfully passing the recruitment process and being willing to commit his entire existence to the MIB, James is rechristened Agent J and heads out with Kay to, to learn the ropes of intergalactic law enforcement. His first week turns out to be a doozy as the pair investigate the crash site of an unsanctioned landing and discover that a bug is on the earth and is walking around in a brand new egg suit. <laughs> <laughs> Having killed and sucked out the insides of a farmer, Vincent D'Onofrio, <laughs> upon landing. This bug is a member of a vicious and hostile species that is bent on waging war upon the more peacefully minded Arquilians. Soon after the bug kills two disguised aliens, K and J go to examine the bodies, and during that examin examination, medical examiner Dr. Laura Weaver, played by Linda Fior Fiorento, Fiorentino, <laughs> one of those, <laughs> accidentally opens the head of one of the disguises, revealing a small injured alien of the, of the Arquilian race, who in their dying breath tells them, to prevent war, the galaxy is on Orion's belt. Or more accurately, what is word? <laughs> Belt. Oh, gentle Rosenberg. After swiftly neuralizing Dr. Weaver so she forgets the alien encounter, K and J hottail to informant Frank LePug, voiced by Tim Blaney, who, like many other aliens, is keen to get out of NYC now they know a bug is in town. Frank informs the agents that the dying alien they met was the guardian of a galaxy that is a precious source of subatomic energy, with the bug keen to acquire it so that its species may destroy the Arquilians for good. To make matters worse, an Arquilian warship enters Earth's orbit, issuing an ultimatum to the MIB to give them the galaxy or the Earth will be destroyed. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. They're very polite about it. Yeah. <laughs> With only one hour to spare, K and J must put K 
must put Jay through his paces as they strive to find the bug, take it out, and ensure the galaxy doesn't fall into its slimy mandibles. But just what could the Arquillian have meant by the galaxy is on Orion's belt? Alright. Well, this is, um, we're just going to pause the recording now and go and watch the movie again because I am jazzed as hell. <laughs> that was good. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, that's well, most of them. Yeah, <laughs> well, but not, not to jump the gun there. I mean, it's, it's a tight, the movie's done in 90 minutes. It's like eight minutes of credits. It's a tight 90 minutes, if even that. We're going to get into this more with Anna, of course, but mm. that's a lot to extrapolate from what you actually see, isn't it? It is, yeah. <laughs> that, that would be like at least ninety minutes of two acts of a yeah, other, yeah, other filmmaker's film. Yeah, but um, if you are familiar with Barry Sonnenfeld, he mm. is he is someone who likes to come in at a tight ninety. <laughs> yeah, yeah, nice and uh, nice and condensed, nice and <laughs> no flat, just crack on with the world building, set it up. Watch them fall. <laughs> I think the fact that it is such an efficient, um, tight, condensed movie is all the more remarkable given the slightly checkered production history. Nothing mm. catastrophic. As as far as these things have gone. As far on as the, I mean, the Amblins, yes, yeah. specifically. <laughs> um, but would you uh, would you care to follow me down memory lane if I demuralize you and uh, take you into the annals of? Men in Black history. Please do, and I would love to remember it after <laughs> after it all. <laughs> so it wasn't an original script, but it in oh, fact no. is loosely based on the comic book that was written by Lowell Cunningham and illustrated by Sandy Caruthers, which mm. I've never actually read, and I I've wished read, I had. I read the very first issue yeah. a few years ago. It's very different. Um, yeah. For one, Jay is a white man. <laughs> Much darker from what I hear. It's as well. very dark. So like the setup is similar-ish but jay's a da agent investigating right. a drug cartel um and it turns out aliens are running this drug cartel yeah but um and another like major difference as well like the comic books weren't just extraterrestrial yeah it was more the, it, yeah it was more yeah. the x-files idea yeah, of the man yeah. in black um so yeah it built more into this mm. kind of otherworldly supernatural yeah slash extraterrestrial vibe and it, it's quite scuzzy and yeah, even well, like yeah. the look of the artwork you, you'll be able to tell i saw, I saw like lots of jagged edges and, yeah and extreme but i saw also one of the things that was mentioned repeat re, re, repeatedly get the word out for some reason is that it was much like um more morally ambiguous like mm-hmm. they would often kill to protect oh, they kill a lot of people the in it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the neuralizer is still a thing in it yeah. it's just not used quite as casually <laughs> <laughs> the old flashy thing <laughs> So yes, The Men in Black, as it was known then, the definite article preceding the title, was inspired by Cunningham's friend introducing him to the concept of shady government officials referred to as Men in Black. Mm-hmm. And it consisted of two series, which were each made up of three issues. The first series was published from January to March 1990 by Air Cell Comics. Mm. And then Air Cell was acquired by Malibu Comics. And a second series ran from May to July 1991. And then in 1994, mm-hmm. it was purchased by Marvel. Marvel. <laughs> and uh, no, by the name of Marvel. <laughs> to, to, to skip forward a little bit, around the time of the film's release, Marvel published a number of one shots and various. Yeah, they did, and, and they, they did a movie adaptation as a comic book as well, mm-hmm. which I can vaguely remember. Right, I don't think yeah. I ever owned it, but I can vaguely remember seeing that on shelves, yeah. very vaguely. Um, I guess more my tie-in is more the animated series and 
video mm. games, but that's a that's sort of follows another the release. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> so the rights to Cunningham and Caruthers comic book were optioned in 1992 by a dynamic husband and wife producing duo Walter F. Parks and Laurie McDonald. After starting out with their own production company in 1991, the two bounced from studio to studio until they finally ended up in Spielberg's orbit. I was going to say, they've done a few. Yeah, I think Universal, they were at Columbia, I mean, they were obviously they were at Columbia when this came out, but they, as we'll find out, ended up elsewhere shortly afterwards. So you got me, uh, no, you didn't get me this, did you? A friend got me a book about DreamWorks that I've mentioned mm. a few times on the podcast before, and it's interesting reading about Spielberg's relationship with Parks and McDonald. Because by all the accounts... They do a lot of the DreamWorks stuff as well, don't yes, they? Yes, they do, yeah, yeah. Um, so Parks was named president of Amblin in 1994, and with his suave demeanour and social ease, he was something of an aspirational figure for Spielberg. It, does, it, it goes into quite a bit of detail about like this guy, because so Spielberg did... was always quite a geeky... Yeah. Um, like, proudly geeky. So and... did he take that role when Kathleen Kennedy left? It was around that... Yeah, because mm. yeah, yeah, of course, because they left... I think they left around about... They yeah, left post Jurassic been... Park. I yeah, think, yeah. Schindler, Marshall, and Kennedy. Yeah, so he, the Marshall he filled, Kennedy Company. So he filled mummy's. He filled the mummy daddy gap, yeah. <laughs> and he became this sort of daddy slash big brother figure mm-hmm. for Spielberg. And um, yeah, the the <laughs> it sounds like he was everything Spielberg wanted to be in terms of sexiness and, and coolness. Anyway, not to get too psychoanalytical. <laughs> um. Save that for AI. <laughs> <laughs> some point in the mid-90s, uh, Parks and McDonald brought Spielberg Men in Black and offered him a percentage of the first dollar gross in return for his prestigious name as an exec producer credit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then as a result of this, they could leverage a position as the heads of the live action division in the fledgling DreamWorks studios, which uh, is something that ruffled more than a few feathers and rankled DreamWorks partner Jeffrey Katzenberg <laughs> in particular. The billionaire nursing a bit of a chip what on his didn't shoulder. Rankle him. <laughs> Why no? He was desperate to prove to Spielberg and Geffen, who was the other uh, billionaire DreamWorks partner, that he had the creative goods. But as he found, because um, he was an animation guy back at Disney, he kind of became the DreamWorks animation guy. He just struggled to crawl out of, Get out of that ghetto. Yeah. Uh, but he was desperate. I mean, he to... did very well there. <laughs> he did. Like, he played, dude won the first animated Oscar. He exactly. didn't do too bad. But um, he he wanted that the gauntlet that was the live action head position, and he resented Parks. Give and... animations more credit, Jeffrey. I, know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not to get too off the beaten track, but there was an awful lot of um, Parks and McDonald weren't the best to kickstart DreamWorks Slate because it took a while. Three years after the company was founded, they were still hadn't announced the slate. It took a while to get it off the ground. Mm-hmm. And then the initial few were like, um, yeah, Peacemaker, we talk, Peacemaker, yeah, Peacemaker, Paulie, Paulie <laughs> talking parrot movie, Paulie. yeah. That. <laughs> <laughs> you mean yeah. a couple of the early animations, like, aside from Prince, Prince of, of Egypt, Egypt, Ants, which, yeah, that was, yeah. uh, Rodel Dorado didn't do very well. And then they fucking win Best Picture with American yeah. Beauty, which kind of blindsided all of them. <laughs> anyway. Just to, 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 to reel this back a little bit to 1992, 1993, thereabouts, when Men in Black was on the Amblin slate, Parks and McDonald sought out Ed Solomon to write a script faithful to the spirit of the comics. Now, at this point, Solomon's most recent credit was Super Mario Brothers, yes. on which he was one of three writers. Uh, but before that, he cut his teeth on the cult Showtime series, It's Gary Shandling Show, which I haven't watched, but I 
God, I know the one afterwards, the Larry Sanders show, was very much a precursor to a lot of like The Office and Cobra no, Enthusiasm Ap- kind Ap- of things. Right, yeah, yeah. Shandling guy. I know, he's a big, um, big cult figure. Uh, Solomon also, along with Chris Matheson, launched the Bill and Ted series mm-hmm. with uh, Excellent Adventure and Bogus Journey. Mm-hmm. And recently returned to that with um, they did. Face the Music. <laughs> <laughs> Bless him. <laughs> uh, when Solomon first pitched his script, it became clear that the executives had something bigger in mind than the rise sci-fi comedy he was envisioning. Uh, the first studio note he received was actually more big guns. More big guns. <laughs> So he had to slightly adjust his approach. Uh, to direct Parks, McDonald turned to Barry Sonnenfeld, attracted by the dark strain of humour he brought to his two Adams family movies. At this point in time, though, around about 1994, Sonnenfeld was attached to Get Shorty and thus predisposed. So the pair instead approached Les Mayfield. <laughs> on, on Miracle 34th most... Street? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, obviously, Mayfield fell through. Uh, so John Landis and Quentin yeah. Tarantino were both oh, asked to direct those two names, which yeah, I can very much understand one of them. Yes, I guess Tarantino is just like coming off a of Pulp Fiction, right? And it's yeah. just been like, ah, oh, this kid's hot shit. Yeah, Let's see if yeah. he wants to do this. But ironically, he turned it down because he had his own Elmore Leonard adaptation to yeah. go for. Uh, whereas John Landis turned it down uh, because he had his career-long passion project, The Stupids, in the pipeline. <laughs> No, he was. He was in Why fact has this worried. Come up on three separate episodes. <laughs> Consecutive, maybe. He was worried that um, the suits would look too much like the Blues Brothers, so he didn't want to have this aesthetic pigeonholing, which seems quite silly. Anyway, yeah, whatever. It's, it's quite a while ago. John Landis has lost his our game. In <laughs> yeah. this instance. Um, ironically enough, because of these setbacks, Men in Black was delayed long enough that Sonnenfeld was able to make it his next project after Get Shorty, which is uh, very much to our game. Uh, many of the early drafts uh, set the film underground in locations ranging from Kansas to Washington, D.C. to Nevada. And it was Sonnenfeld who decided to change the location as a lifelong Washington Heights dweller to New York City. Uh, feeling New York, New York City. <laughs> tolerant of the kind of odd behavior displayed by aliens in disguise and comparing many of the city's structures to flying saucers and rocket ships. Indeed, he termed the movie The French Connection with Aliens. <laughs> Good pitch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so with all that in, all that sort of locked in, let's turn to casting. First was Tommy Lee Jones, the first of the principals to be cast, accepting the role on Spielberg's promise that the script would improve because he was not impressed yes. with the first few drafts. Because I, I was aware, I think he really liked the comic book. Yeah, um, he was annoyed that it was straying too far from the mm. sort of ironic tone of the comics, and apparently he said. So this is a quote from Solomon. He said I needed to make up my mind whether it was a comedy or a science fiction and that it couldn't be both. It could be two things. <laughs> it can be two things. I, think, I can't um, sanction your performance. <laughs> well, as we'll find out as we go along, Tommy Lee Jones has an interesting relationship to comedy. See. <laughs> Sonnenfeld also said the studio really wanted Clint Eastwood. It was me who asked for Tommy. And then I almost got screwed because they couldn't hire me because Tommy had director approval. And Tommy's the one who gave me approval. So ah. in fact, Tommy Lee Jones might have even preceded. Yeah, it was probably why he's top billing, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. um, for Lee Jones's trainee slash partner, the studio was leading towards Chris O'Donnell. Yes, they were also considering <laughs> David Trimmer for the role. Trimmer passed. I was going to say, like, they, he 
just turned it down straight out. Straight up, yeah, turned it down. Um, Sonnenfeld's <laughs> wife was a big fan of the Fresh Prince of Bel Air, and she therefore put her husband onto the scent of Will Smith. And thankfully for all of us, Sonnenfeld took to Smith. Mm. But as Smith had yet to star in the smash hit Independence Day, the studio was reluctant to go along with him and pushed Sonnenfeld towards what they saw as the man of the minute, the star on the rise, Chris O'Donnell. <laughs> oh, sorry, Chris O'Donnell. <laughs> Don't mean to laugh. It was, no, I mean, it's sad, but I think enough time has passed. Yeah. It was Spielberg who was quite keen. Spielberg insisted that Sonnenfeld had dinner with Chris O'Donnell. Bad Boys had um, been quite a hit, hadn't it? It had, and I think that might have been part of the connection that ultimately led to Columbia. I guess it's a bit harder, on, a bit of a harder it... edge, I guess, so it's a bit harder yeah. to envision him as a... It wasn't a, a four-quadrant hit like this was mm. aiming to be. Um, but when Sonnenfeld had to go on his Spielberg-mandated dinner with Chris O'Donnell, he purposefully scared <laughs> the actor away. Here's the quote from Sonnenfeld. I knew that I wanted Will Smith, so I told Chris that I wasn't a very good director and that I didn't think the script was very good. And if he had any other options, he shouldn't do Men in Black. He let it be known the next day that he was not interested. <laughs> so he was I'm in this instance, what he would have done instead. Is that scent of a woman time? <laughs> yeah. So to, to immediately carbon date this podcast, uh, Sonnefeld was Roman and Kendall in this uh, context and Chris O'Donnell was Matheson. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I did. Well done. <laughs> well, yeah, Batman and Robin out the same. Year, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is post. Hang on, is it though? No, maybe. No, it wasn't because it's filmed in early nineties. So when's this? These discussions happening? These discussions are around ninety-five. Ninety-five. So it yeah, probably is like, just yeah. as he's he's probably got Batman so, forever yeah, in the can. Yeah, and that's yeah of thinking, course, of course. This guy's Robin. He's going to be hot shit. <laughs> um, Smith. Finally accepted the role after meeting Spielberg, and you know, obviously Spielberg's on board as a producer. He's an impressive guy. You aren't going to say no. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the antagonist of the film, after the role was turned down by John Turturro and Bruce Campbell, Vincent mm-hmm. D'Onofrio was brought on as Edgar, jumping into the role of a possessed bugman, despite being associated with more serious fare like Full Metal Jacket and The Player. Uh, a quote from David Rubin, the casting director, goes. Vincent was not known for his comedy, but he was also a smart actor who knew how to mine it without underscoring it. He had a unique physicality that really worked in that role. Said physicality was apparently aided by D'Onofrio putting on knee braces so Mm. that he couldn't bend his legs and taping up his ankles. And he also apparently based the voice on George C. Scott and John Huston. (laughs) Which makes a lot of sense. (laughs) 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 <laughs> that's really good you gotta kind of like yeah. have the tongue like, oh yeah yeah oh, better <laughs> where's your dad <laughs> I don't have any <laughs> and finally we have Dr. Laurel Weaver who as you mentioned is played by Linda Fiorentino an actress whose early 90s was largely defined by erotic thrillers both acclaimed The Last Seduction and Panned Jade and she supposedly won her role I read this. in the film through a poker game. <laughs> through a poker game. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I've seen that in a few places. I don't yeah. know how, I don't know how true it is. It could be apocryphal. But... I, I did watch an interview where she said about getting a role and apparently Barry, Barry Sonnenfeld, when he offered it, he was like, you're not getting naked in this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, there's a quote that Roger Ebert wrote 
in his review of her 1985 debut Vision Quest that I think sums up her on-screen appeal really well. So Vision Quest. Vision Quest, indeed, yes. I've never seen Vision Quest. Um, what comes Vision a- Quest. <laughs> <laughs> this her debut movie, I guess. Uh, what comes across is a woman who is enigmatic without being egotistical, detached without being cold, self-reliant without being suspicious. She has a way of talking, kind of deliberately objective, that makes you listen to everything she says, which I think sums up everything I've seen her in. Yeah. <laughs> Except maybe Dogma <laughs> since then. So Vision Quest also stars Matthew Modine, mm. uh, who plays a high school wrestler who falls in love with an older woman, an aspiring artist from New Jersey. <laughs> so she and Nofrio both work with Modine around the same time. Yeah. Well, I don't quite know why it's called Vision Quest. <laughs> <laughs> Balto 2 Vision Quest. <laughs> is that what it was called? No, something uh, like that, wasn't Balto it? Balto 2 is... Oh. It is something like Vision yeah. Quest. You're right. <laughs> Can't remember now. <laughs> Wings of Change was definitely the third one. <laughs> the Wings of Change. Wolf anyway. Quest. It's Wolf, Wolf Quest. Quest. <laughs> okay. Of course Carry on. on. <laughs> moving on to the design of the film, which... Mm. I'm... Gonna try and make the argument in the conversation with Anna is 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 as iconic to our audience as mm-hmm. Star Wars was in the day. Oh, um, no, no, I just decided to do that now, but I, I do think it's still a very iconic looking film. Mm-hmm. Um, production designer Bo Welch, which is a fantastic name. He's a great. He's yeah. Burton's guy, right? Yeah. He approached the MIB headquarters with a space age tone in mind, referencing the fact that the organization was formed in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. A crucial reference point was the Finnish architect Iro Sarinen. Sorry, Iro Sarinen. Apologies to our Scandinavian listeners if I've butchered that, which I surely have. Who designed the term? He designed a terminal at JFK. I was going to say, I think he was yeah. an airport architect. <laughs> Wells wanted to reflect the fact that this was the aliens' first point of contact or first port of call, rather, upon arriving on Earth. Uh, in charge of prosthetics and animatronics was our boy mm. Rick Baker who described the film as his most complex production of his career that required more sketches than all of my previous movies combined. And this was largely due to Baker requiring approval from both yep. Sonnenfeld and Spielberg, <laughs> who apparently had contrasting ideas and were unable to agree on a single Wasn't vision. it a lot like Stephen liked the head, That's Barry what, liked yeah. the legs yes. and they went can't you put them together and like, mix and match. it doesn't work like that <laughs> I'd say no it doesn't make any sense <laughs> Sonnenfeld also changed his mind a lot on the film's aesthetic during pre-production and he took a bit more time than others three months to be exact to be convinced of Baker's instincts regarding alien designs so I found an, inter- an interview with um, <laughs> a roboticist named Mark uh, Setrakin who worked on the film as a mechanic and puppeteer Mm-hmm. And he said that due to Sonnenfeld's indecision, they just stopped making stuff. Yeah. <laughs> they just stopped making stuff, and eventually it captured the imaginations of Sonnenfeld and Spielberg enough that they worked them into the script. Yeah. So. I think like there's a similar thing in when last time we touched on Baker yeah. in Gremlins 2, yes, where like, absolutely, yeah. he just got his workshop to be like, Congratulations, you're in the movie. Yeah, yeah. Make an alien, make an alien, make an alien. Uh, well, <laughs> specifically talking about the Rosenberg alien, the, mm. in your synopsis, the, the one, that one in the head. inside the head of Gentle Rosenberg. Oh, um, is this the bartender story? Yes. <laughs> so, as said, so to give it a bit of context, there was initially to show the fact when Kay's first showing Jay around New York and he wants to open his eyes to the fact that aliens exist amongst us in various parts. Originally in the script, 
they were at a bar and the bartender kind of lifts his chin and there's a glow of light that you see behind it. And it's a simple throw. <laughs> so they made a mock-up about that. I'll read a quote from um, Cetrukin here. So he actually built a little model of it, of the guy lifting up his entire face and revealing that his body was a robot and there was a tiny alien sitting in his head piloting him. The whole concept was just throwaway. It was something that you would see for a second, like a really cool reveal, fake head with a hand, and then this little alien. They liked the idea so much that they wrote a completely different scene with the Rosenberg alien, which had dialogue and became this thing where it was revealing one of the main plot points. It is an incredible puppet. It's astounding, isn't it? I I remember that being one of the trailer images as well to really sell it. Yeah. To this day, I mean, because the the body of... um, The body of what's the actor called who plays the, uh, Mike Nussbaum? Mm-hmm. Nussbaum. Uh, it was it was the body in the morgue is a full prosthetic. None of it's real, but it looks so. It does, like, yeah, that whole, yeah. Like, so everything feels really off, tangible. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Um, so Such yeah, an expressive puppet, just astounding animatronics. These dying words. What is word? <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then some of the models that were built by Baker's team were digitized by ILM to allow for more mobile digital versions. Mm-hmm. Like Mikey. Of Anxiety. Mikey. Uh, principal photography began in March of 1996, and in true Amblin style, there were many last-minute changes during production. First of all, the New York Philharmonic decided late in the day to charge the filmmakers for using their buildings. So the introduction scene of Jay had to be refitted from the Lincoln Center to the Guggenheim. I never knew that it was at the Lincoln Center first. Yeah, apparently it was. Um, and again, Guggenheim's. I think they again. That's visually they quite nice. It's, it's, it's yeah. a really nice yeah. building to shoot a chase scene in. <laughs> um, perhaps more complicatedly, five months into the shoot, Sonnenfeld decided that a Douglas Adams esque existential debate between Jay and the Bug mm. was not exciting enough for the climax which led to five potential replacements being discussed, which included Dr. Weaver being neuralized and Kay remaining an agent, before everyone agreed on a good old-fashioned bug fight. Mm-hmm. This led to Rick Baker's animatronic being replaced with a CGI creation, adding an extra $4.5 million to the budget, which Sonnenfeld later said was the best $4.5 million mm. he ever spent. Because like, they only built the puppet to like move and talk yes didn't it, couldn't they? it couldn't bend yeah <laughs> it couldn't like do action <laughs> i mean it caused a bit of um consternation so yeah. we said because a lot of work went into that animatronic but rick again is like <laughs> et all over again <laughs> Steven. and then beyond this beyond uh you know scheduling and licensing and animatronics and vfx there were acting issues shall we say um, mainly being Tommy Lee Jones, the famous crack, come, come, come <laughs> struggling to wrap his head around the acting requirements of a comedy, or specifically a Barry Sonnenfeld comedy, which is, there's a quote, so for my birthday, listeners, Andrew Gerdion very kindly got me Barry Sonnenfeld's autobiography, mm-hmm. Barry Sonnenfeld, Call Your Mother, which is uh, <laughs> such a good title. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of, do you know the context of the title? <laughs> so is that, um, is it a Jimi Hendrix concert in the mid-70s when he's uh, sort of mid late teens and he he had to really persuade his mum to let him go because mm-hmm. you know she's very protective and, and monocoddling and um jimmy hendrix a lot of delays obviously a lot of troubles as a performer he finally gets on stage and he's about to start his set 
and there's an overhead announcement saying, Barry Sonnenfeld, call your mother. <laughs> and he immediately thinks, oh shit, my dad's died. I know for a fact my dad's died. And he gets to the phone, he answers the call, and his mum said, uh, it's past midnight, why aren't you home yet? <laughs> <laughs> Called the concert hall. <laughs> yes. That's a great story. Um, it, the book is, is littered with those. But yeah, anyway, so in one of the quotes in the book from Barry Sonnenfeld um, is... He's describing a moment when he almost died in a plane crash. <laughs> <laughs> and he's talking about how amazingly he was able to stay calm uh, in that situation. And he gave him a sense of perspective. And he says, in a calm, what could be described as ironic, almost sardonic voice, I pointed out the window and very flatly, which is the way I left my lines delivered, said, um, it doesn't matter what he said, the idea is that he is very much aware of what he wants from his comedy mm. and how he wants actors to sort of deliver their lines and uh i think that's something that tommy lee jones couldn't quite but he's so initially good at the deadpan. get his head around yeah so, so good at deadpan. <laughs> i think he needs to be trained because yeah Sonnenfeld said tommy just hadn't been in comedies and just didn't know that you need to play the same reality as you do in dramas mm-hmm. bo welch had a much more um incisive re- recollection he said after a particularly broad take Barry says, whoa, 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 no, 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 And Tommy says, I'm in a comedy. And Barry says, yes, you're in a comedy, but it'll be much funnier if you're as flat and dry and businesslike as possible to contrast Will Smith. So Tommy had to get his head around that. But when he did, it worked. Yeah, but he geez. was a pain in the ass during shooting, <laughs> apparently. I saw, like, a bit of B-roll of, um, <laughs> as they're, like, going to do a shoot. And it's literally just Barry at the start saying, you okay, Tommy? How are you feeling, Tommy? All right, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> he did say very good things about Sonnenfeld after the fact. Yes, I, I, I think they all generally... Like, yeah, seems to. They did two more them. after this yeah. together, so I, I think, think that I'm, went a long way. <laughs> yeah, paraphrasing now, I think Tommy Lee Jones said to, to be successful in a comedy, stand next to Will Smith and be directed by Barry Sonnenfeld. Something mm, along Yes, no, I think that I heard that in that yeah. same yeah. Um, Which is cool. documentary I watched. Um, conversely, Will Smith was beloved on set and, by all accounts, a consummate gentleman. Thomas Duffield, who's the art director, said that Will was always great. I never saw him even mad on the set and he gave everybody a bottle of Don Perignon at the end. <laughs> Big um, <Billy> style. <laughs> and in an interview at the time with Newsweek, uh, Will Smith said, this whole super guy thing, the super macho man who jumps in front of a bullet just to be tough, it's not really appealing. It's much more appealing when you duck. Which is a really <laughs> that's a good line. Yeah, it's, <laughs> really sums up his appeal back in this mid nineties mm-hmm. pocket. Um, but there was also room for such a high profile blockbuster for ad libs and improvisations that could work their Smith way into the film and isms. Yeah, <laughs> uh, one that wasn't Smith was from Brad Abrel, who voiced one of the worm guys, and he said. Um, the script called for the worm guys to be conversing in some gibberish alien language in the coffee room. When Tommy Lee Jones asked my worm, don't tell me we won't have the powdered stuff, my answer to him was just improvised gibberish on the spot. A few words here and there were crafted beforehand. Zambuba and Caguenas, <laughs> etc. Tommy, by the way, was fascinated by the creatures and took pictures of them to show his son. <laughs> That's cute. <laughs> it's very, very cute. Uh, and the final point of note uh, during filming is to say that despite the massacre of bugs in the film, the American Humane Society made sure that no animals were hurt during filming. Yeah, I mean, no cockroach. No. that 
that you, much. <laughs> there were packets of mustard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It looks on. like mustard. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and at the end of each day, they had to count all the cockroaches to make sure none were missing. This is nice to hear. I, 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 when I read about like that original ending, I did try to find an original copy of the yeah, script online because oh, I, I would love to read what that uh, dialogue well, was, but I couldn't find one. Yes. Did you find one? No, I didn't. No, but interestingly <laughs> enough, there was another huge change that was made, either in the edit or on the... There was contrasting things I read. Some say that it was in the edit after a test screening, and some say it was on the fly whilst shooting. But originally, um, there was a whole different element to the main alien invasion plot. Did you know about this? Is I uh, say it, but I think I know... I did read about this yeah. earlier where there was another war going on basically we were caught in the middle and the bugs were like uh, vultures who were wanting to eat up the the, the the debris from the thing so sonnenfeld says that in the original script there were two warring parties that was it, yeah the baltians and the archillians and they were fighting over a very small galaxy which is the and the baltians are the was originally what the restaurant meeting Carol, was between yes, the, yes, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they just changed the subtitles exactly, <laughs> exactly. so the scene between I can never say his name. Um, Carol Struckian. The giant from Twin Peaks. Yes. <laughs> the man from another place. And Gentle Rosenberg in the Polish, or is it Russian? I think it's Russian, actually. The, the Russian eatery. That was recorded in English, and they are two ambassadors oh. from different alien races. Sorry, I just had a sudden visceral reaction of just remembering the cockroaches coming out yeah. over the plate of pasta. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're right about one thing. <laughs> okay, I'm a break. <laughs> So yeah, that was that was they were originally two different the two ambassadors from the warring alien factions, and uh, that was a peace talk that was interrupted by Edgar the Bug, who wanted to elongate the war as long as possible so he and his family could eat right. cookies. And rather uh, than it be that they are the yes, so it wasn't so part in the war. In essence, yeah, the whole um, bul bul bulsions were taken out of it entirely. And it was just the Archillians versus the bug people. And we were kind of in the middle of that, which apparently it was a, a test screening audience. We're just too confused. I think that makes sense. It keeps yeah. it nicely. So they worked Yeah, for There's sure. There's enough sure. like kind of hints at further elements totally. of the world going on anyway. I think, I think <laughs> the fact, because obviously uh, apparently in that version, the imminent destruction of the earth was much more palpable. But I think what makes the film work so much is that I, I, it's always on the one of my favorite. Of yeah, one yeah. of my favorite lines is like, "There's always some kind of it." Yeah, 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 disaster. Yeah, yeah. The only way that these people can get on with their happy little yeah, lives yeah, is yeah. that they do not know about it. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> this is a daily occurrence. Yeah, it's like oh, it's, this is your this is your nine to five. That's why he it. needs to be flat. It's like yeah. again, this again with Anna, but the fact that they're so like Rip, Rip Torn and Tommy Lee Jones, the casting of those guys is so spot on because they're so dry yeah. and droll they, they've done this for nigh on 40 yeah. years yeah. so they're yeah, like yeah, yeah. this is just it's always, it's always just the it. case it's always the, the case. office bureaucracy what <laughs> is it today a bug hunt fine great yeah <laughs> <sighs> um, so on the music front your favourite front we have Danny Elfman <laughs> composing <laughs> the score hell of a score Apparently he was hired after being invited by D'Onofrio to watch the filming of the final scene whilst visiting the set of The Frighteners with Peter Jackson and when he was driving home that night. Great movie if you've never seen The Frighteners. <laughs> I, I was, I've been waiting for a nice way to worm in something like that. <laughs> Add that to our letterbox list. Have you seen The Frighteners? No. no, no, no. I haven't Can seen I watch any the Frighteners Peter Jackson though. Yeah, is it funny? <laughs> I love it. It's, uh, it's, is that Michael J. Couple, Fox? It's Michael J. Fox, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, 
<laughs> in perhaps the more iconic move, Will Smith provided the film's tying single by returning to his rap roots and sampling Forget Me Not by Patrice Russian. Uh, with the ensuing single reaching number one in several countries and winning Smith Huge. a 1998 Grammy for the best rap solo performance. There's a lot of like that album in it, in and mm. of itself. I mean, this is the prime time of the album. film album tie-in. Yeah. Where songs didn't even need to feature in the film. You just had producers coming on to make an album inspired by the film. Yeah. So like, it, there's so many producers on that album. But there's, yeah. Like Della Soul's on it. Uh, Q-Tip is on Q-tip's there. On <laughs> Snoop Dogg's got a track. Yeah. Destiny's Child, I think, as well. It's incredible. Yeah, it's a hell of a roster. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah I mean, but uh, I prefer the song for Men in Black 2. <laughs> but more on that. We'll get to that in, uh, in five, in, in, in five years, time. years' time. Which is not going to be that long in no, real not really, life. No, not really, no. Yeah, the, the, the yearly output dwindles slightly. Mm-hmm. All right, so we're getting to the point of release now. Uh, But just prior to the release, the film's marketing campaign included more than 30 licensees spanning everything from Galoob action figures to, obviously, Ray-Ban sunglasses. Which I think they had, had like, their profits tripled. Tripled, yeah. (laughs) I think it was from 1.5 to 5 billion or something insane like that. Um, There was also a Marvel Comics tie-in, a third-person shooter video game, which apparently is terrible. (laughs) And following the film's release, an animated series, which you mentioned up top. Um, which uh, Sony tended to do a lot with their big mm. blockbuster products, particularly towards the end of the 90s. Yeah. Jumanji had one, which Godzilla. I believe Godzilla had one, and all three of those, Jumanji Men in Black and Godzilla, were made by the same animation house, which mm. I think was Canadian-based. I could be wrong. can't remember their name now. But um, yeah, and they all had a really distinct kind of, again, quite edgy, yeah. grungy style yeah. to them that felt yeah. quite like icky and dark and messy that really suited particularly yeah. jumanji and men in black it really suited yeah. their the films that they were tying into like i remember the men in black series quite a lot the title sequence is enough alone if you like punch that into youtube and watch that now <laughs> you'll get a sense of just quite how yeah. weird this cartoon series is I, I, i've got vague recollections of seeing all of them on like it, saturday that mornings is, that is one of the more successful of this bunch as well because that ran yeah. for about I think I think it was about like three series, 150 odd episodes. Oh, yeah. It's fertile. It's much more fertile than Godzilla. Yeah, as an and Jumanji series. really. I and mean, Jumanji. Because <laughs> like Men in Black, you could just do Mission of the Week, really. Yeah, can't you? yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, um, I, I I have very fond memories of that. And I also had a Game Boy game for Men in Black, but I'm pretty sure that was a tie into the animated series. Not right, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Um. So it was released in the US on 2nd of July 1997, so 4th of July weekend, which became known as the Big Willy Weekend, mm. because this film grossed 51.1 million in its opening weekend, which is a, a little behind Lost World, mm-hmm. but it still made it the third highest grossing opening weekend of all time at the time. The North American gross would total 250.6 billion, with a worldwide gross of 589.3 million, and it would hold the record for being the highest grossing Sony film until it was surpassed by Spider-Man five years later. Mm. Which I believe, I think Spider-Man was the first film to cross 100 mil domestically. I think. I'm almost certain. That's not true, because you just said Men in Black made 250 mil In its opening weekend. <laughs> oh, it's it opening, opening weekend. weekend. Yes. yes, you are correct. <laughs> An important end to my sentence. 
I think you are right. I think you are right. I'm not mistaken. I believe Spider Man was the first film to cross 100 mil domestic in South America. Domestic being North America. Yeah. Uh, Despite these historic grosses, Mm. Solomon has claimed that Men in Black still never technically turned profit due to what he calls or what is known as Hollywood accounting. Yeah. Which basically inflates expenditures to reduce taxes and other profit sharing agreements that a corporation must pay. Yeah. So just really for. Even when you look at a Wikipedia page, mm. the budget you are seeing is literally the production budget. Yeah. Um. So you know that's everything that's going into putting up what you see on screen. Yeah. It doesn't count for tie-ins, marketing. Which a lot of stuff we can often. Vastly, I mean, the, the Lost World. Uh, Two hundred and fifty million alone. For, yeah. Granted, when you then look at the budget, like the box office, that is literally the cinema receipts. You're not yeah. seeing any receipts for merchandise and what have you. So that's also going to be bringing in money. Yeah. But on a literal film to box office basis, they often won't make back their budget in the cinema. Yeah. The, the how much money it's oh, sure, on them sure. in the cinema. Yeah. It's one small component. Yeah. Hollywood accounting. <laughs> Cooking the books on an industrial scale. Yeah. <laughs> so it made a lot of money, despite what the Hollywood accountants might say. Yep. And it got generally, uh, not quite a claim, but it was very well received. Um, Gene Siskel in the Chicago Tribune gave it 3.5 out of 4, calling it a smart, funny, and hip adventure film in a summer of car wrecks and explosions. Uh, Ebert gave praise to the self-reflexive humour and Baker's alien designs, giving the film 3 out of 4 stars. Janet Maslin in the New York Times was very uh, complimentary as well, saying it's a shade more deadpan and peculiar than such across-the-board marketing makes it sound. Um... Others were a bit less infused. Uh, Tom McCarthy and Variety called it witty and sometimes surreal and doesn't manage to sustain this level of invention. Delight and surprise throughout the remaining two-thirds of the picture. Uh, Kleberman for Entertainment Weekly and John Hartle for the Seattle Times were also a bit ambivalent towards the film uh, in its sort of main junk. Like They enjoyed the setup but felt that it squandered a lot of the real scrooges it was nominated for three academy awards including best original musical or comedy score I forgot they used which to i didn't realize yeah, it, used to be it was very two, it like wasn't for very long it wasn't yeah. for long and best art direction losing to the full monty and titanic respectively did not realize that the full monty won an oscar for his score no, I guess when you're going with the comedy or musical, <laughs> yeah, you do narrow things down. Just forget the the phenomenon that was the full yeah. movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ten highest grossing film in 1997. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. Um, but uh, it did win an award for best makeup, the mm-hmm. fifth Oscar win for Rick Baker. Very well deserved, indeed. The cast and the crew also look back fondly on the finished product if perhaps not the entire experience of making it. Ed Sullivan says, I remember seeing it in its final form, coming out into the lobby, sitting down and crying, in a good way, because, oh my God, it worked out. Uh, Mark Cetrican, the former roboticist, is a word I can never say, said the fact that there wasn't a lot of planning going into the movie, the way that it turned out so well, the movie is so tight, short, almost a perfect movie. Going into it, we had no real confidence that it was going to turn out as well as it did, the fact that Barry wasn't really a sci-fi guy didn't matter. The fact that he had a dry sense of humour and a really good sense of pacing, a really good sense of visual style, that's what mattered. And that made the movie great. And to cap things off, 
Lowell Cunningham, the writer of mm. the original Malibu comic, said, I've seen some of the great sights of the world, like the Great Wall and the Eiffel Tower. I've been to every continent now. I didn't actually set foot on Antarctica, but I was close enough to distinguish individual penguins on the shore. I would never have been able to do a fraction of that without the success of Men in Black. <laughs> it opened the world to him. Cues <laughs> <sighs> <sighs> us nicely into our conversation with Anabuga Sky. Indeed, indeed, indeed. Let's uh, get our get our new recruit in. <laughs> Put her in front of the firing range. See, see, who, see if she'll shoot little uh, Tiffany. Let's <laughs> whip out the noisy true test. Let's whip out the noisy cricket. <laughs> and uh, do some damage. Indeed. Please enjoy this. What on earth was that? Sugar. I've never seen sugar do that. Give me sugar. In water. More. More. Your skin is hanging off your bones. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Is that better? Uh, Josh, maybe you already answered this, but uh, why exactly are we here? Oh, we're here to find the best of the best of the best, sir. Oh, in that case, look no further. Everyone, would you please welcome film critic, broadcaster, podcast host, author, film programmer, and a woman who can run down a cephalopod on foot, and that's got to be worth something, Anna Bogatsky. Welcome to Rambling, Anna. <laughs> I love that intro. That's my favorite introduction anyone's ever done for me on any podcast. Uh. I fucking love it, and I absolutely can run down a cephalopod, whatever that's I, I had to listen to the clip before going into this, so it was like, so it's cephalopod. Cephalopoid. 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 I kept wanting to yeah. say pod, yeah. but it's point. <laughs> <laughs> That's going on my running training plan as of tomorrow. I'm like, you're running not for personal gain, not to increase your speed and endurance. You're running to be able to run away from a cephalopoid. Cephalopoid. <laughs> cephalopoid. Knock that punk ass down. I've got it written phonetically in my notes. <laughs> I so often do that in mind. But I, I, I don't trust my pronunciations to such an extent. <laughs> How are you doing, Anna? Uh, I'm good. I am genuinely pleased that we finally got to do this oh, because it's been a while. We've been trying to coordinate for 
Josh, I want to say, am I correct? <laughs> Two years? Oh, yeah. That, that checks out with a lot of the guests. We, like, we, we had, had. Um, yeah, we had the exact same thing with your recent Kermud and Mayo's take co-host, Rihanna Dillon. We had her on for the uh, How to Make an American Quill episode. Slightly different tone to this one. Uh, but she was also, <laughs> <laughs> we also had discussions in the pipeline for a good two or so years. And uh, we're very grateful to both of you. For, yeah, uh, for sticking for with us. Sticking <laughs> with us. Thank you. I do remember when you, when you sent me the list, I was like, Men in Black. I must have it. I must have it. So why has no one got this yet? <laughs> why? I mean, I, with no disrespect to your wonderful previous guests, are you all insane? Like, the, why was this not the number one film that you covered? I think Rihanna was quite upset that she couldn't get to do it, and I think Josh was like, "Oh, I haven't got that one. Sorry." <laughs> I've got to talk about a bloody quilt. <laughs> <laughs> We're still none the wiser as to how to make one, so. <laughs> like you say, it's been it's been it's been uh, two years in the making, but we're very very glad that we're getting getting off the ground now, and I'm I'm particularly around uh, this time as well because we we come to you just as you're very close to releasing uh, a book. And that's very exciting. How's all that been going? <laughs> I am. Yes, I've been. This is my third podcast of the day. <laughs> wow. Um, it's it's my first book. Uh, it's called "Unlikable Female Characters: The Woman Pop Culture Wants You to Hate." It's all cultural criti- criticism, film and TV history, a little bit of kind of righteous feminist anger mixed up in there, just sprinkled all over it. And yeah, it comes out in the US on May the 9th and in the UK on June the 9th. And Lovely. it's exciting. People seem to be liking it. People are asking me to talk about it, which I find weird. I like I <laughs> Josh no, Josh knows this cuz we've worked together at events and done and done events together, but yeah, it feels very different when you're the mm-hmm. person being interviewed mm. versus doing the interview. I never get nervous Imagine. around interviewing anyone, but I am breaking myself before <laughs> every single interview I've ever had to do. Where I was like, I don't, I don't know. What do you ask? What do you, what do you want me to ask? What do you want? Me, what do you want Stop to know? Leave me alone. Leave me alone. <laughs> don't buy the book. Just fuck off. Like, Read it. It's all there. You don't need, need, need me to tell you. It's all in the book. It's all there. Don't talk to me about it. <laughs> I'm very happy for you. It must be so exciting. And uh, we'll make sure to be pick up a copy and tell our listeners to pick one up. And Thank we'll, you so we'll much, guys. I appreciate it. Exciting yeah. times. And like that book sounds like it covers like quite a wide spectrum of movies and TV shows and what have you. And being someone in the world of film criticism... Uh, programming and broadcasting and all that jazz what were the kind of the gateway movies for you into like falling in love with uh cinema and what part if any did steven Mm. spielberg and amberlin entertainment play well some of my earliest movie memories they're quite disparate actually because i think i had a very you know canonless sort of Mm -hmm. grabbing whatever seemed appealing by the cover of the vhs and and stuff like that or kind of Mm -hmm. what was on at my local uh multiplex which weirdly and i grew up in barcelona for context weirdly i grew up right next to the only multiplex that screened films in original version so that's Mm. like whatever language they were made in with subtitles which is not the norm 
in Spanish cinemas, usually it's all dubbed stuff. So it's right. like got a whole other kind of side industry of voiceover actors who dub the Spanish um, George Clooney. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, no, that, but that's a real thing. It's yeah. a real thing. Like you know, when an actor died who was like the voice of Harrison Ford, there was like a whole. It was a You're whole like, oh news story. He was like, oh no, who's going to do Harrison who, who, Ford now? <laughs> exactly. No, it was a thing actually. But anyway, so I, I like I remember. I really distinctly remember falling in love with the Wizard of with the Wizard of Oz, mm-hmm. which I saw on my little TV that I had in my room. I remember falling in love with um, Nightmare on Elm Street, mm-hmm. which I saw when I was like eight or nine years old. Oh, my cousin wow. showed that to me. <laughs> I know, right? It explains a lot, right? Uh, and then I also kind of remember falling in love with you know weird little movies that I had no idea actually existed until I then much decades later discovered they were in fact actual films and not just weird products of my imagination like (laughs) The Giver or the one Christoph Lambert's film where he's like in a space jail and they have collars around their necks that oh, will that explode like if they misbehave I can't remember that. It's cool. yeah <laughs> i can never remember the title of it but there's kind of this other you know side canon of hollywood films that i mm-hmm. watched just because they were on and then they launched themselves in my brain like why have i seen every single paulie shore film i don't know <laughs> and yet i have that's an expert <laughs> but then you know there's films like now and then which is still one of my favorite films ever it's a 1995 kind of coming of age movie about teen girl friendship or you know pre-teen girl friendship and then you know your usuals like the goonies you know mm-hmm. or hook i remember loving robin williams um as an actor and as a comedian kind of going basically going to see anything that he was in i think i even owned a v copy of Jack, the Francis nice. Ford Coppola directed <laughs> absolute bizarre <laughs> film with him and Jennifer Lopez, by the way. Yep. J-Lo was in it. Um, yeah, and you know, when, when I, I knew you were going to ask me this and I was like, what role did Amblin play? I didn't think I had a relationship with Amblin. I didn't know what the company was. I didn't know what a company was. Mm, yeah. <laughs> but what I do really distinctly remember is like Steven Spielberg. Like I remember that name. I remember, you know, when you'd be asked as a kid, now I wonder why anybody asked me that. But you know, you have this idea of like, who's the best in the world at something. Mm. And I remember thinking, who's the best director? Who's the best filmmaker in the entire world? The go-to answer was always Steven Spielberg. It was like, Oh, that's the, that's a fact. It's not a negotiation. It's not an opinion. It's like, that's a fact. It's like, who's the most beautiful woman in the world? And I would always say Pamela Anderson, you know? And like, mm-hmm. whatever the culture was at the, at the time, it's like, oh, this is the, this is the reality. This is the fact. It's best in the world. Mm-hmm. And Spielberg was always that for me. And then, you know, you grow up, you start noticing on the names, you start developing your own taste and stuff. But I guess because he was, he was always there and he was the image of a filmmaker, you know, yeah, kind of yeah. bearded with a hat with the glasses and the camera, that was what a filmmaker was supposed to look like. And then obviously that is very much not true. (laughs) (laughs) And yet that was the image that I had. So it was like a very disparate collection of a very disparate film education that Mm -hmm. ranged from a lot of classic Hollywood that I watched relentlessly and kind of absorbed at the same level as very trashy, mostly 80s and 90s movies that were just screening for no reason uh, (laughs) during the summer. And I've just watched them as well, because why not? A movie is a movie is a movie is a movie. 
and then whatever they were playing at my local, you know, ver original version uh, multiplex, which again just meant I went to see stuff like Donnie Darko and New Rose Hotel. I don't know who, like, <laughs> any of those filmmakers were, what those films meant, but I still went to see them and yeah. the ushers knew me because I was there so much that they'd be like, yeah, just go in. I know it's an 18, but, you know. We, Fine. We know Just you. go ahead. Yeah. We we sold two tickets for this movie, and one of them is you, so it's fine. Just go ahead. I, I think that's that. pretty healthy. That's a very healthy relationship with cinema. <laughs> did uh, so during this um, voracious education? Did ET the extraterrestrial ever factor in? Do you know what? I was trying to remember this. I don't think so. Mm -hmm. I don't think I watched ET as a kid. I knew who ET was. Mm. I knew the, the little creature and mm -hmm. I knew the kind of the images that were famous from that film. But no, I don't think I saw E.T. until I was in college. Interesting. And when you did see it then, this is a, the, the test, did it make you cry? No, I don't cry, Josh. <sighs> I, was, that is <laughs> I didn't want to assume because people can surprise you. I, I, I figured I've been on a pretty good streak. This whole thing came about because in our E.T. episode, one of the two of us... I'll let you mm -hmm. figure out who got quite emotional. And uh, that led to a, a, a conversation oh. about whether or not E.T. is a film that is guaranteed to make you cry. I would argue that it is, but I've been proven then, wrong yeah. many times. I said the, no. Uh, I lost the Twitter episodes. poll. So now, now we make it a thing where we ask every guest if, <laughs> <laughs> if they cried at E.T. just to see if I I'll do. win the overall poll. <laughs> I mean, to be matters. fair, though, I think I, I would like to rewatch it again mm. like see it again uh, anew and as an adult who's mm -hmm. hopefully much more in touch with my emotions than i was as a teenager <laughs> uh so perhaps it will make me cry and then you know i'll, I'll let time, you guys know every time i go we back to it it's like maybe this yeah. will be the time maybe no, this is the one <laughs> we all have a emotional it. Piece <laughs> yeah um so talking about emotional connections to films, as you mentioned at the start of the episode or at the start of our conversation, mm -hmm. as soon as we sent you the list of uh, films that were unclaimed, you were straight on there with Men in Black. So what is your relationship to this film? Why were you so keen, uh, aside from the fact that it's perfect, why were you so keen to, uh, <laughs> to hop on the Men in Black train? Okay, let me paint you a picture. Yes, please. So when I was, uh, I read a lot as a teenager, as mm. a kid. From very early on, I was a constant reader to the point where my parents were like, here's a library within walking distance. Just go there because you cannot keep like we cannot keep on buying this many books. You'll just we'll buy you three and they're done by the end of the day. It's unsustainable. <laughs> so anyway, I became a very cool library kid. But I discovered there was this sort of mail order service for books that I discovered and I think it's a real Spanish thing anyway I was well into it I was it was like couponing but as a kid and with books so it's like what is that like what can I get what are mm -hmm. they going to send me mm -hmm. and as part of the kind of the mail order book circle thing I could order VHSs and there was a very uh... limited selection and one of those was Men in Black and I was like, well, this is this is a nice cover. Like, I want to see this. And I remember getting this VHS and I had no context for it whatsoever. Popping this film in and I had the same reaction to it back then, whenever that might be, late 90s. I probably saw it like 98 or 99 or so. Mm -hmm. So it was like a preteen. Uh, as I did the other week when I rewatched it. 
in 2023 in London on my Ambilight television. I'm like, this is fucking perfect. I love it. <laughs> it's creepy. I'm freaked out by the idea that aliens might be walking amongst us. The like memory stick thingy kind of mm. want one now. <laughs> it brings some bad experiences. <laughs> but it was like this, you know, sort of mysterious VHS that I ordered off a physical catalog wow. <laughs> in, in 90s Spain. <laughs> the other movie that I ordered through that service was 28 Days with Sandra Bullock and Viggo Mortensen. <laughs> what a double bill. Does that hold a similar place in your heart? <laughs> it does. That's why I always thought of Sandy Bullock as a really good dramatic actress as opposed to a comedian. <laughs> None of you saw that, did you? <laughs> <laughs> wow so you've got a relationship with the film as a physical entity yes as a physical yes. object that is fascinating i never I had saying... it on vhs when i was growing up i always no. had like i got it i got it on dvd as my you remember when like uh um empire subscriptions used to ha- give you a free dvd mm-hmm. whenever you signed up for a subscription that's how that's when i first got it on physical copy i'd always i'd seen it on tv when i was a kid but mm. uh, that was that was my first physical copy. <laughs> and it's still the one I'm using to this day. <laughs> hey, man, it, I know that there's like a VHS club, film club night in London uh, that they do screenings sometimes. If they were screen Men in Black, mm. I am there like front row for that VHS screening. And I'm definitely crying. <laughs> oh, man. This is, we are, we, another thing that's come up in terms of crying with regards to films is when a film is just firing on all cylinders and it's just nailing everything it's going for mm-hmm. and clicking and, and just doing it so well that it kind of makes you well up at the, the, the possibility of art and you know, popular entertainment. And this is definitely a film that gets me in a similar way. Just uh, maybe it's the, the long shot of, um, of, the, of the spaceship coming down to crash in Edgar's uh, front yard while he's arguing in the background with his poor wife Beatrice, and you realise, oh, this film is doing an awful lot of character work and exposition and sort of pure visual storytelling in a very mm-hmm. concise, uh, eloquent frame. This is uh, exactly what I want from films. <laughs> <laughs> films. And you get a good little tingle. And, uh, maybe, maybe, well up a little bit. I certainly get that with you. <laughs> I get a little tingle when, you know, the alien royalty dies and Mm -hmm. his cat becomes the becomes persecuted by the giant bug that vincent d'onofrio is playing (laughs) the cat the shot of the cat mourning for his for his owner dying it's sad (laughs) i always like think back to particularly that puppet as like one of the defining images of the first men in black for me because i feel like there's a lot that really, like, particularly when you see this as a kid, because like I always remember thinking it looked before I saw it. it um, it was something I've shared with Josh. The I was always really familiar with the trailer because it was on the the Tilda VHS mm-hmm. that I had. So and it, it always looked like this really like kind of weird and cool and uh, scary, uh, scary movie that I hadn't yeah. seen yet. And I was like, oh, gonna, gonna track this down one day. And then when you like, even that trailer is kind of peppered with images of the bugs and of Mikey mm. blowing up and 
this. Is that better? <laughs> it is kind of scary, it though. Is, like, yeah. even if when you watch it, like, Vincent D'Onofrio's performance, okay. the giant cockroach, yep. like, and even just the, I know this is a little bit more sort of, you know, conspiracy theory or the aliens <laughs> amongst us, who are the men in black, uh, definitely a rabbit hole I recommend going down into <laughs> because it gets much creepier, much weirder than it this film. But does. it, it basically ask you to go along with this premise of yeah all those rumors they're true Mm -hmm. they're true there is a government conspiracy there are aliens amongst us there is technology that is going to blow your socks off oh yeah and by the way all of this happening in plain sight but you're just too dumb to notice and we have technology (laughs) that can erase your memories you're just like instantly the proposition is like whoa yeah 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 yeah. it's all real (laughs) (laughs) and i think a good place to start perhaps with that in mind is ed sullivan's script which is such a concise wonder. The world building, uh, Andy, um, at the start of our episode, read out a synopsis that you read about the film that, that gets into all of the implications of this concept. And like you were just saying now, the, the existential suggestions it makes. But it's done in such a concise, like... Matter of fact. <laughs> solid way. It really is a wonder of construction. It re- and, and, and the way it sort of that filters up into every other aspect of the production. So I, I, I don't really know what the, the question I have here is, but <laughs> I think do, do you guys like, feel a similar kind of adoration for it? Yeah, I, I think it's like the conciseness of like just lines of dialogue to build in a world weariness mm-hmm. that it just kind of emanates from Tommy Lee Jones being Tommy Lee Jones anyway. But when he's like kind of yeah. delivering lines like um, little bits of exposition that are kind of delivered in such a kind of deadpan and kind of... Um, well-trodden way by him and in the, in the right writing. Something like, who pays all this? It's like, uh, we got a p- couple of patents on a few things, uh, technology <laughs> that we're holding yeah. back. And then, uh, <laughs> just little bits like that, that just kind of build it into the fabric. And like, particularly Tommy Lee really stresses that, like, I've been doing this job for the last 40 years. <laughs> I'm, I'm tired. <laughs> just yet. I mean, one of the things that I do find really interesting, just looking at Ed Solomon's filmography, which I have right in front of me, mm-hmm. as masterful as this script is, what I want to understand also, <laughs> well, I just want to shout out some of his other masterful works. Mm-hmm. And there is not a shred of irony when I say this. Charlie's Angels from mm-hmm. the year 2000. Yeah, solid movie. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. 10 out of 10. And Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. 11 out of 10. <laughs> and now... With some irony, Super Mario Bros. The Super movie Mario from 1993, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, which was his mm-hmm. previous credit, I think, when this film was it when was. he was hired to write this movie. Yeah, and uh, I, uh, by all accounts, he was the first guy they went for. So clearly, that wasn't enough to derail <laughs> his career. Uh, if you see that script, that and and even that movie, there's a weird mm. kind of aesthetic. Um, it shares a lot of kind of aesthetic details with Men in Black. Weirdly, I think it's got mm. this similar kind of like slimy oily grungy quite dark and weird <laughs> like, approach to the world that it's building so i have you guys have read the script itself no, no. Um, which, which version the shooting script or one of the because there were a lot of drafts it, it seems like with this film and it changed hugely in its uh, in its development have you read any of them no, no, I haven't. But I'm always, uh, mm. I'm always curious whether, like, mm. you know, people are referencing the actual script itself, or like, or you know, what ends up on yeah. the screen. Yeah, yeah. So I feel like there was quite there was a bit of improvisation. Obviously, you got 
Will, Will Smith, who's very comfortable in that mode. Tommy Lee Jones, yeah. I'm not quite sure how much he will have gone off script, but um, in the research for this, it, it sounds like what Ed Solomon first wrote at the very, very start was something more in a Douglas Adams mode. The climax was originally going to be this humorous existential debate between uh, Jay and Edgar the Bug. I think mm-hmm. at this point in his human form still. And I, I I think fragments of that do survive. There is this absurdist attitude. Yeah, there's definitely a Douglas Adams on. vein running through the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Even just like seeing the MIB headquarters particularly and the way yeah. like that, that's monitoring like a airport um, departures and arrivals, check-in lounge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, lots of little Easter eggs in there as well. There's the... The aliens from Explorers make an appearance in the background. <laughs> There's a bunch of them in there. So, yeah. I guess on the, on kind of like that level, what was uh, so, some of the design elements of it that you really like hooked onto from a young age or like still really impressed you to this day from this film? Because you've got so many kind of like uh, from like the production design down to even all the alien creatures and what have you. I think for me it was the creatures, to be honest, because mm-hmm. there was just such a variety of what an alien could look like. Like, you know, from the, the tiny creatures that were making coffee in the coffee Word break guys. room. <laughs> yeah. Or like, you know, the multiple heads of Tony Shaloub's uh, Jack Jeeps. <laughs> you know, it's like, it looked like a human, but I'm not a human. Um, you know, to the big roach. Mm-hmm. Uh, to the little uh the little talking dog mm. <laughs> uh, like just you know th- creatures that were you know looked like us or looked like you know animals that we're familiar with and then just absolutely otherworldly like you know early cgi kind of kind of creatures and to be honest like it because of uh because of how it straddles kind of the the known world and the unknown world and mm. because of you know the 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 way that you know sure it's aged a little bit like you can tell it wasn't made yesterday but it has it still has this sort of tactile mm-hmm. element to it that mm. really works for me I don't, it's like you know it's like jurassic park right yeah. i'm sure the technology is better now i i know it's better for a fact but there's something about the feel of it mm, totally. and i can i have that same sensation with men in black as well where it's like oh yeah. no i can i can almost like see i can feel the little aliens in the coffee room i can like see the coffee spill on the floor where they're handling the mug (laughs) i can like almost smell the sliminess of the green blood as you know tony shalhoub regrows his head you know when his eye like (laughs) (laughs) yeah and like you know uh, especially edgar's design the bug and like (laughs) half of it is performance half of it is makeup and then when he like explodes out of his Edgar suit it's like holy shit obviously I can see the CGI but I'm mostly just freaked the fuck out by this giant cockroach yeah particularly that bit where it's like there's a lot of shots of Edgar the Bug that really were recurring images and nightmares for me there's like (laughs) there's the pulling back of the head there's just like the hands holding plates of pasta with like his like kind of (laughs) fingers just like decomposing and cockroaches mm. running out onto the plates yeah. of food and then there is that one near the end where he just rips open his back and the, yeah oh. from the back and this is a pg yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a bit of design that this, this this human suit is gradually rotting and decaying yeah, yeah. on top of him as the film goes on and it gets more and more grotesque 
It's um, yeah. it's 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 remarkable. And it's a I, hell of a performance from there. Well, the this kid. is what I was going to get into. <laughs> so um, I'm going to open the floor. My take on this is that Vincent D'Onofrio in this film puts in one of the most outstanding physical performances in motion pictures. <laughs> Anna, I throw it to you. Definitely in the nineties. Definitely mm-hmm. the nineties. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I love Vincent D'Onofrio. I think he's I think he's weirdly underrated mm. as an actor. Yeah, like sure. he's yeah. been doing great. I mean, he, you know, he did his Kubrick movie, Full Metal Jacket. Like he's got a he's got a Marvel role now. You know, mm-hmm. he plays the Kingpin. But and he wow. kind of really transitioned from kind of this sort of you know, uh, kind of good looking sort of methody kind of actor to. Oh, you're you're like a full on character actor, mm-hmm, and I mm-hmm. think it's this movie that really cemented that. Another performance of his that I love is The Cell, which is much yes. more contained, yeah. much yeah. more you know eerie and scary in a different way. But here, like from the, we only see Edgar as a human for a very brief moment when yeah. he goes to investigate the crash landing in his back in his backyard. But everything, like and like you mentioned, the way that he, the design. And the movements of Edgar evolve throughout the movie is just outstanding. Because, like, as the body basically like decays around mm-hmm. him, his movements change. The way that like he makes himself like seem bigger mm. and kind of um like his skin flabby, or by basically just I don't know like compressing his body in different yeah. ways as the movie progresses. I fucking love this performance yeah. i don't think it gets enough credit because he makes it creepy just through his body movements mm-hmm. like even if you take away the bugs when the scenes you know outside of the ones where he has bugs kind of oozing out from under her shirt and stuff just the way that he moves and looks at people and just cranes his neck a little bit it's yeah. horrible Scary. and it's horrible in that kind of like disgusting way where you're just like I don't want you anywhere near me. Like, yeah. please leave the premises. <laughs> There's something gross and unholy about you, and I don't know what it is exactly. It's incredibly um, <laughs> Properly, properly rancid. And it, and it is, it, to say it's a PG, this film gets away with a lot. Like, the introduction, where th- this guy that you meet has his innards sucked out, and you see his skin being yeah. you know, flopped out of the yeah. hole as a suit. And I think the only way the film gets away with that is in that, like, what is it? Like, minute-long shot of the saucer coming down while he's berating his poor wife. He's established as an unrepenting piece of shit who deserves to get. <laughs> I think that's the reason the film gets away with the grisly fate that he, that he achieves. Oh, but also, it's bloodless. Mm, There's yeah. no blood. Yeah. And any blood that, that so there is, is, is blue. <laughs> all all yeah. the blood is, is, is you know, primary-coloured <laughs> red. Exactly. Yeah. But it, 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 it's an incredible feat that he achieves. And he seems like, he looks like someone who is, is in pain and is con- trying to contain something that's yeah, dying to burst just out. Like, really, every... really doesn't want to be in the skin he's in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he just wants some sugar water. Yeah, sugar. <laughs> water. <laughs> something that I read that I, I'd never made the connection with. So you know when Jay and Kay go to uh, Beatrice's house to question her about her yes. missing husband? And he takes a sip of lemonade and he, and he kind of goes, oh, yeah. and spits it out. <laughs> Did not clock that that is because she had no sugar for the lemonade because he drank all of the sugar previously. <laughs> what a wonderful little detail. That's amazing. Yeah. That's a cute little detail. Yeah. yeah. But also, you know, you mentioned the PG, but 
the not just the amount of violence and kind of grotesquerie and mm. you know just the existential uh, mess that this film leaves you in <laughs> yeah. um I think it was a little bit before that, but like I definitely remember looking up at the sky and being like, "Oh my god, we're insignificant yeah. little creatures, yeah. and nothing matters, and the nothing that we do <laughs> in our lifetime will ever amount to anything." And the ginormous enormity of the cosmos, fuck. That might have been. We're all part but, of someone else's marble, ultimately. Yeah. I started looking at my cat weird. I was like, what are you up to? Can you talk? Mm-hmm. But there is this like, also just the amount of sexual innuendos mm, in this yeah. film. I was Particularly like, Jesus. <laughs> oh. My favorite gal from the 90s. down here you really have to see. <laughs> yeah. My favorite bit about that is when, when she's under duress, when she's like being held hostage by Edgar mm-hmm. and she's trying to convey to Jay that she's, she, she's, she's She's reading no differently to how she normally reads because <laughs> real queen of the undead thing going on. Yeah. yeah yeah she's very deadpan yeah i think i think this was the first i'm a big linda fiorentino fan yes. especially yeah. again of her performance in the last seduction yeah, yeah. <laughs> great i do also have the whole queen of the undead thing going on um, <laughs> No, but The Last Seduction yeah. from 94, which is her big kind of role, starring role, is one of my favorite films of all time, uh, features very heavily in the book. Uh, but this was the first, actually, like the no, this was the first time I saw her on screen, the second time being Kevin Smith's Dogma. Ah, and mm-hmm. I always just remember this like very, I don't even want to be here energy yes. that she has. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which uh, which kind of works in this and she's with the director yeah. in this film that can use that because mm-hmm. his co-lead also has that mm-hmm. energy but when kevin smith is your director that energy is slightly uh <laughs> more palpable i suppose <laughs> yeah much as i do like yes. I, I did I like up to go on a bit of a tangent <laughs> ahead of clerks three i did a bit of a viewer skew universe rewatch and Dogma played better than I remembered it playing. Yeah, I think it's, a good it's movie. definitely I like one of his better. I love <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think it's a great movie. Probably his best, in my opinion. But yeah, probably. <laughs> another podcast. <laughs> that can be the spin-off. We'll tackle Kevin Smith <laughs> later on. No, but she she is great in this. She's she's such good casting, and it is a, a real shame. I guess we'll get into this more in our Men in Black Two episode, but it is a real damn shame that she wasn't yeah. brought back for the sequel. Yeah, I don't quite know why, having not yet delved into the in between mm. period. I know she kind of steps away from Hollywood at a, at yeah. a point, but I don't know if that's kind of before or after Men in Black Two, because mm. she has really yeah. good chemistry with Will Smith as well. She does. So they, yeah, they they, yes. they spark well together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, was this everyone's kind of? I think it certainly was for me. Was this everyone's kind of first introduction to Will Smith as a movie star? Because I remember having mm. watched like Fresh Prince of Bel Air beforehand on, on TV at home. But I think this would have been the first movie I saw with Will Smith in. Can you guys think back to that at all? Was your introduction to Will Smith. <laughs> so I definitely, I, I was thinking about this and I can't quite place it whether it was this or wild wild west but mm. i'm pretty sure it was men in black mm-hmm. i think that the the timeline aligned so that it was men in black but i'd seen fresh prince of bel-air quite a lot it played on tv in spain yeah. quite a lot so yeah. i knew who he was i knew kind of his vibe and you know i, re- I recognize him not tommy lee jones yeah. on that cover yeah um and interesting like i 
I didn't quite distinguish kind of, you know, oh, does it mean you make movies or are you a TV star? What is that? You know, when you're a child, you don't really. But I always had him in my mind. I was like, oh, that's that's Will Smith. Mm. He's a movie star. Yeah, that's who he is. And it is kind of incredible the run of massive successes he had for a couple of years, for like a four or five year run in the 90s. He had Bad Boys, he had Independence Day, he had Men in Black, Mm -hmm. he had Enemy of the State. It all ended with Wild Wild West. (laughs) (laughs) But damn, he had a great couple of years there. He was like the biggest box office draw of that period in the 90s. Yeah. And you can totally see from the literally the first shot you get of him in this film, like a proper movie star intro, you can completely see, oh yeah, this guy arrived fully formed as a movie yeah. star. Yeah. You completely understand why he was Mr. Fourth of July. It, that quality is... And I don't want to get open the whole kind of worms about the movie star is dead these days because uh, it's boring. But I think that particular quality that he possesses in the first frame in this film you can't you can't fake and yeah. i don't think is around in the same way these days that kind of that no. magic mm. absolutely also just the magic of that mm. combination mm. right tommy lee jones will smith you know that kind of um vibe is yeah. rarely exists kind of in cinematic duos and i think that's the main reason why you know men in black 2 is flawed men in black 3 just does not work uh, and I think a big part of that is because we're missing that that balancing act of, you know, Mr. Showman with yeah. Will Smith, especially in this era of his career where he's, you know, he's so hungry. Yeah. He's so keen to be the biggest star in the world. And like, yeah, go for it. Like, you've got the talent, you've got the charisma, you've got mm-hmm. the looks like you're an incredible screen presence. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's like his approach changed a little bit later. He was going after, you know, like more meaty roles. He yeah. wanted that wanted Oscar. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Exactly, Ali, you know, so he changed his approach. But during this era, that charm is Mm. just effervescent. Mm -hmm. And if he put that in direct contrast with this more like gruff, surly, I've been around the blog about 200 times kid vibe that Tommy Mm -hmm. Lee Jones has going on. (laughs) It just it matches perfectly because, you know, too much of the Will Smith uh, Kool-Aid is too much mm. well there's too much of the gruff exterior of jones would also just like you know derail the movie it would give it a completely different tone doesn't yeah. really match with the design it doesn't really match with the premise or with the with the special effects with other people's performances but them two together yeah. it's just dynamite mm-hmm. yeah yeah i think that the, the real coup with how will smith is portrayed and is presented in this film is that he's kind of he's low status playing at being high status like he, he has this poise in this posture that reads as high status but the joke of the film is he's thrust into a world that he has no possible way of understanding and he's trying to act like he's on the level and he knows what's going on but he cannot and the film is always like the, the casting of Tommy Lee Jones is always undercutting that kind of poise that Will Smith brings to it and that's the true nugget I think of the, of the humor that makes this film work mm-hmm. so well but also to that onto that there's I think some of the funniest moments for me of the film are the ones where he's like 
No, he does have this sort of deadpan mm. approach for the world where he does not care mm-hmm. what is considered the right way of being. It's like one of my favorite, one of the funniest scenes in the movie, I think, is when he's, he cannot, they cannot get the test done. You know, <laughs> yeah, they're given yeah, this yeah. like giant egg <laughs> seats and they've got a pencil and paper and like all the, you know, the best of the best of the best from all the different armed force- forces just cannot get the pencil to work on paper and he just drags yeah. this table very loudly towards him and it's like it's an effective solution yeah. and it just goes on yeah. it just keeps going he keeps dragging he keeps dragging and it's just pulled up <laughs> that's such good screenwriting that's that, that gets yeah, across this kind of the smarts that he has that, that his uh, Captain America compadriots don't have yeah the thing yeah, that ultimately I mean, that gets whole selection crazy. process is <laughs> yeah incredible. yeah like to then go straight into that shootout <laughs> yeah in the shooting gallery <laughs> yeah yeah and uh, snarling he's sneezing, he's sneezing. <laughs> <laughs> but that like that the compassion that he shows that, that extra level of compassion that he shows in that scene is kind of his save the cat moment i think you know, the mm-hmm. idea of the first, that stupid screenwriting book in the first act, you've got to save the cat to establish that you're a good person or whatever it is. Um, Solomon sort of doles those, that idea out in various different ways that Will Smith's, that Jay approaches the world. So you have the, the implicit understanding that these aliens aren't necessarily de facto bad. Yeah. And then that kind of plays out further along when uh, Beatrice gets neuralized and he tries to give her a better memory upon <laughs> herself coming to make it, make it a happy memory. Yeah. And it's just there's a, a, a humanity. Exactly, yeah. Get, never make over. Do your house. Sort this thing out because damn. But there's just I, there's I such do, a, a strain of humanity to uh, his characterization. I do definitely have some questions about the MIB onboarding process because he just gets thrown straight in. There's no like, there's no sitting down to for a lecture about, <laughs> about different species to look out for. <laughs> what, what's the handbook situation here? <laughs> No mandatory online training modules. Yeah. <laughs> Narrated by Zed, I imagine. <laughs> um, so, yes, yeah, so just to move slightly laterally, Tommy Lee Jones as Kay mm. in the co lead, were you familiar? So, you say you weren't as familiar with him beforehand, Anna. Did, did you know him from anything, mm. or was this your first No, I to think. Him? I think this was my first Tommy Lee Jones. Wow, yeah, a good one. Yeah. I think Batman Forever might have been my first Tommy Lee Jones. <laughs> <laughs> and he's going big and that. <laughs> yeah, no, I definitely saw him after that. And actually, like, I always, weirdly, I guess, thought of him again as a comedic actor because yeah. of this performance. Yeah. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, that's, that's not who he is at all. <laughs> <laughs> he's so unbelievably funny in this film. He is, he's funny yes. in the fugitive as well. Like, yeah, yeah, he is. He is. It's um I forget where I read it or who said it, but somebody was talking about how as an actor he always seems sort of pissed off and like he doesn't want to be yeah. there. And the really good performances are when the director is able to to harness that and use mm-hmm. it to either comedic or dramatic ends. And mm-hmm. um <laughs> I think Sonnenfeld really is just an ace, ace director of actors and an engenderer of chemistry. Yeah. Uh, and it helps that he's got that the alley-oop that is Solomon's script because some of the lines he's given, the way he can really get his teeth into them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just money in the bank. 
Well, it's it's really I think Sonnenfeld has this thing which you can see also in the two Adams family yeah, movies absolutely. that he does before this one. Is that he can make surreal um worlds seem familiar yeah. and absolutely matter of fact. And I think actually a big part of the is not just the production design or the effects, it's his direction of actors. Yeah. Like he is 100%. telling them an act in a way where it's like, this is your world and it's not new, it's not interesting, it's pedestrian, it's mm. everyday. And that's how Tom that's the role that I think that Tommy Lee Jones is playing in Men in Black. You know, he's he's used to this. He's seen this for 30, 40 years. Like it's not this big mind bending situation for him anymore and he has that you know like bureaucratic office of approach to it all where it's like oh my god we have to do this again <laughs> and that's what makes it so funny as well because yeah. as we're freaking out you know will smith's agent j is our audience surrogate we're freaking out alongside him you're like mm. yeah i'm just gonna sit on this bench and for 12 straight hours thinking about what it means that I now know that we're not alone in the universe, but perhaps I will not know this mm-hmm. uh, come sunrise because I'll get the little memory eraser mm-hmm. thingy. But Tommy Lee Jones is just unimpressed. Yeah. yeah. This is day to day. So like the us seeing him be totally chill and nonplussed with everything is part of the joke. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. The whole thing... Um when Will Smith's trying to stress the immediacy of, oh, the planet's going to be destroyed in five minutes. And Tom Lee Jones says, that's every day there is a situation. Like, <laughs> yeah. there's, there's always an existential threat. And the only thing that keeps these people going is that they do not know about it. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> I think that is even kind of folded into what you, you do get a nice arc for Kay uh, mm. in this kind of tight 90 minute bundle. And I think part of that, why you can kind of buy the reason for his decision at the end to be like, oh no, I'm not, I'm, you're my replacement. You're not my new partner. Mm. Is that he's, <laughs> he's got this like lost love that he's be- clearly been thinking about for every day, the last uh, 30 to 40 years. And I think that bakes in quite nicely into like, this is also why he doesn't really um, care too much about what's going on. He's like, oh, I don't want to be here. <laughs> <laughs> Doing some light stalking using alien technology. Using alien technology. (laughs) Telling crude jokes to recruits that he's going to neuralize shortly afterwards. (laughs) Clumsy little tangent. Um, You know, when he first takes Jay out to see Jeebs and then neuralizes him and he sort of comes to you in a Chinese restaurant and you hear the end of a joke. The case telling. Yes. This one's eating my popcorn. I found the context of that line. If you guys would humor you know, me. I've never never known what, what the actual build-up to that joke was. And it's been, right. what, a good 20 years <laughs> since I first heard it. So it hit me. Well, buckle up. Uh, a farmer went to town with his pet rooster to see a movie. Animals weren't allowed in the theatre, so he put his rooster in his overalls front pocket and smuggled it with him into the crowded theatre. When the lights were dimmed, he let the bird peek out so it could see. The woman sitting next to him noticed and nudged her husband... This man's a pervert. He's got his cock out. His husband replied, So? It's nothing new. It's nothing you haven't seen before. To which his wife said, But honey, this one's eating my popcorn. 
How did you find that? <laughs> I, I cannot remember. I went into a bit of a fugue state, just tumbling down <laughs> in black. Um, what depths of the internet funny. did you Eating visit, popcorn. Josh? Joke. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh. But to kind of talk, expand maybe a bit more on like the how the relationships work, you were kind of touching it a bit on, on it, Josh. Uh, kind of what Barry Sonnenfeld's bringing to this, and we, we kind of spoke a bit about the Adams Family movies. Were those movies that you were familiar with before Men in Black, or is this also kind of your introduction to Barry Sonnenfeld and his kind of trademark uh, movie-making, movie style? Well, I, I mean, as a barely reformed teenage goth, uh, <laughs> evidently I was familiar with mm-hmm. the Adams Family movies. In mm-hmm. fact, I refuse to acknowledge any Adams Family interpretation <laughs> that is not the Barry Sonnenfeld movies. What is this Wednesday bullshit? What is this fucking animated Adams Family for kiddies? Get it out of my face. I was hoping this would get this reaction. <laughs> <laughs> I'm. <laughs> deadly serious absolutely it's, it's not canon okay it's not adam's family canon there's the 60s show there's the comics and there's the 90s movies all the other shit is just nonsense sorry i cannot i cannot get on the Catherine zeta jones butchering morticia like that's for another podcast um, have me on the morticia adams podcast when you set it up but we'll you know. yeah I, I think as a kid i was like i don't think i noticed that it was the same director mm-hmm. although kind of in hindsight i have you know like a vague floaty memory that i thought the font was similar yes. you know when it actually yeah. writes out the names of the, yeah. the credits the actress and the director um but obviously now in hindsight is 2020 and as an adult, an adult, I'm like, yeah, of course they have a similar vibe. Mm-hmm. Of course they do. But yeah, I loved the Adams family. I obviously heart related to Wednesday Adams and aspire to grow into Morticia Adams, <laughs> which, you know, maybe just like an overgrown Wednesday still. But yeah, I love those films. And I think, you know, I was always really drawn to, and now I can credit, you know, Barry Sonnenfeld for this, to these kind of weird worlds that existed Mm. in the same plane as the normal world. So I was like, Mm. yeah, I don't really want to go to another planet. I just want to live like in a big spooky house, but do nice things, but be kind of spooky, (laughs) like part-time spooky, you know? (laughs) The same way with the aliens. Like, oh, I just want to, like, live my life and have my cat and go to, like, you know, nice brunch, but also visit an alien planet sometimes. Why yeah. not? <laughs> Hang out in a morgue and open dead exactly. bodies' faces. <laughs> yeah. Oh, she's so into her job in this film. Yeah. You know, Dr. Laurel Weaver. She's Do like, we... oh, let me show you hmm. these insights. Okay, I've got a question, though. I feel like you might have an answer to, Anna. There's, there's a bit when she's talking to Jay and she says to him, do you want to know what I do? You know, want to know what I get up to with her at night? And she never gets to answer, <laughs> never the, gets question. To answer the question. <laughs> what do you think she was going to say? Uh, oh God, I have two answers for that, <laughs> and one of them I don't think I should ever say out loud. The other one is like, it's not a family podcast. Don't worry. <laughs> I was like, I don't think podcasts existed at this point in time in the 90s. But what I imagine her doing is like, well, I listen to murder podcasts and I dig around in cadavers. Uh Like, that's very on brand for her. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, She's not going to be like reading Sweet Valley High books. (laughs) 
But I don't think she was doing anything un- inappropriate mm, with the corpses, no. okay? I don't, that, that's not the vibe. <laughs> <laughs> Although I absolutely see her bringing over hookups to oh, the morgue. Totally. Mm. totally. Yeah, absolutely. Totally. I think that's what she was alluding to. <laughs> <laughs> but Sonnefeld, that is his skill. He does sort of see through the, the veneer of everyday life and... Andy uh, got me his autobiography, which I'll show you right now. Oh, wow. For my birthday. I didn't even realize he had yeah, one. It's fantastic. <gasps> it's fan- That's amazing. It's really funny. And he reads exactly in the voice that his films play in. And you do get a sense of this guy. He grew up in Washington Heights in Manhattan. And uh, he did live a life that very much was in that in, in the sort of liminal space between what normal people see and what it's like. In the, in the gutter or underneath your shoes and he has a perspective that you can see filter through into what is ostensibly a good run of kids movies he does find yeah. the, the sort of the, the dark underbelly mm. and even um in preparation for the episode I, I did fill in some gaps of his and I, I tracked down um for love or money the film that he made in between the two adams families with michael j fox and it's a weird little mm-hmm. sort of old hollywood throwback kind of screwball comedy about this um hotel concierge that michael j fox plays who is very it's like a fixer he's like an underground mm-hmm. fixer for his guests um but even that ostensibly sunny happy girl lucky movie does have a underworld of its own this sort of subculture mm. and sub society that you can kind of see playing into the world that he explores in men in black and it's it's fascinating seeing this guy develop that and Something happened to him in the late 90s that took him away from that. He gets kind of, he ends up being kind of the studio comedy guy for a little bit. Mm. Um, Despite the fact that, like you say, I think like particularly those Adams Family movies, this movie, and even like his work uh, at the start of his career with the Coen brothers Mm. is like their go-to cinematographer. Don't forget Get Shorty as well. Yeah, he's doing a lot of like quite strange and Mm. kind of bizarro world building be it um calling the shots or being the guy um lending it and that gets lost around i think i honestly think wild wild west really did break him a bit <laughs> and so, so he didn't really didn't feel the impulse to kind of go that weird yeah. go that kind of grungy with something again probably met a guy a <laughs> like he, he finally met the one person that could outweird him john peters john peters <laughs> i'm i'm sure you guys already know the story about the giant yes. spider oh, yes. yeah <laughs> of course you do. it's fantastic yeah that's a kevin smith a giant anecdote, metal isn't it? spider yeah. <laughs> the most vicious predator in the animal kingdom <laughs> But I want it giant, and I want it metal. <laughs> but I do, I do kind of want to know. I wonder if your research has shown anything that would explain how the brilliant cinematographer, first of all, you know, worked on a lot of the early Coen Brothers mm. movies. Then brilliant director of the Adams Family, Adams Family Values, Get Shorty, Men in Black, ends up making the Kevin Spacey. <laughs> Kevin Spacey turns into a cat movie. <laughs> In 2016. His last featured credit to this day. <laughs> My I don't know God. how we get there. 
And I don't think anyone's ever going to have a straight answer for us. <laughs> I mean, does it show up in his autobiography? I, I haven't so. got there yet. <laughs> I've, I've only gotten as far as his porno days so far. So. <laughs> <laughs> Still a ways off, but I'll let you know. <laughs> Please do. I am genuinely curious. Yeah. Because I'm like, Me I too. did not expect that combination of factors. <laughs> I don't think anybody did. Also, that CGA cat is fucking terrible. Uh, like, I'm sorry. I had cats and dogs on DVD and watched it an enormous amount I, of times. I, I, that yeah, CGI of that film is better than Nine Lives. <laughs> <laughs> that actually is a very, very nice um, avenue that's opened up ahead of us because I do kind of want to talk about what I think, not so much cats and dogs as the CGI, the CGI of it all. Like cats and dogs. Um, <laughs> one thing that tends to stick, if, if anyone out there were to have an issue with this film, which I certainly don't, and Anna, I don't think you do from the sounds of it either, but I, I think don't. one thing that people will cite is the final sort of act, the final climax confrontation that becomes a CGI mm-hmm. bug fight. And Andy, I'll throw this to you because I know hmm. you are one such person, are you not? I Yeah, I think it's just, it's and it's part of the kind of uh, package that you get with Sonnenfeld anyway. Because mm. um, uh, he's a guy who very much likes to stick to as close to 90 minutes as he can. Mm. And whilst I think that does lead, particularly in the case of this film, a lot of really strong economic mm. storytelling choices. Um, sometimes when it comes to like big final acts, final confrontations and this is something that i think is a problem in all three men in black movies it all kind of feels something like you spend about maybe like three to five minutes actually within like the final act confrontation so when from like k gets swallowed Mm. and uh him shooting his way out and that that slight like kind of uh words well just jay kind of going, going back at the bug trying to get him to stay it's all very, it's it's very concise and almost to the point where it's like it, when it's over you're like oh okay because <laughs> <laughs> then the film I, does just finish doesn't it pretty much there's, yeah. there's no, there's no it's, uh, it's great well like, there is a there's a little epilogue I because do like we the see epilogue. yeah we see that you know the mortician mm-hmm. doctor weaver becomes agent l you know, so that's the, a, an amazing uh, suit. <laughs> yes, there's a suit update. There's glasses updates. Yeah. Like, yeah, they get a whole kind of you know, black, men in black makeover. Uh, so there is an epilogue of sorts. But mm, yeah. you do have a very good point. It is like a lot of building up to like five minutes of action. Mm, yeah. Um, and and I wonder. Part of me is like, are we just not perhaps that used to it because? I'm not saying anything neg- negative about the MCU. Oh, I am please. a fan of Marvel movies, but <laughs> I do think there's like a, you know, the formula of the superhero movies that we've been so accustomed yeah. to over the past mm-hmm. whew, over more than a decade now. It has been like build up, build up, build up 20 minute action sequence, yeah. like the 20 minute showdown. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's almost like to the minute yeah. mm-hmm. in every single one of these movies. And this one, like you're right, it's like build up, build up, build up. And it's like, oh, confrontation. Oh, okay, we're done. Story's yeah. done. We're out. Yeah. Like we've spent enough time yeah. in, the, in this world. And I, I don't know, like it's still, it never feels abrupt to me. Mm. Although I could absolutely see your point that like it actually, if you break it down like to the minute, it actually does not spend that much time with the ending. <laughs> yeah, I, and I guess you can, like, as we, like, in reading this, you touch upon the uh, 
the ending being changed quite last minute mm. and then that yeah. decision to go from having a conversation with a puppet to yes. a yeah. confrontation with more big guns a bug fight and that <laughs> that I, that in itself is like saying like even this bit of cgi that they had to um kind of make room for that cost four and a half million dollars as it is just for what we have so mm. I also at a point it's like ah uh, necessity dictated that we yeah, have to do yeah, it this yeah. way more than anything else. <laughs> <laughs> I think personally, and um, this is this sort of feeds into the reason that I like Garth Edwards' Godzilla film so much more than you. I think that the the promise of a big monster fight is always so much more exciting to me than the actual realization of said monster mm. fight. So I'd much rather spend time. But there's promised. no one to spend time with. That's a different podcast. It's that's, no a di- that's a different, time that's a different that podcast. <laughs> <laughs> like the visual teasing, though. Anyway, that's, uh, by the by, I think I, I this I get enough of uh, a bug fight in this film that I feel very satisfied. I can't really imagine how much more I could be given without feeling numb and bored by it. And I think that is something that phew, 10, yeah. 10, 15 years of MCU, twenty minute arbitrary um, previs action sequences of instilled me with followed by 10 minutes of wind down this film you get five minutes of bug fighting then like one shot that neatly sums up the fate of k how uh the um the world's fair area destruction was presented to the to you know the new york civilization yeah. and then k's new status as uh being in a partnership with l and then that's it bah, out then you get that good little button so Training a new partner. What you're saying is like <laughs> it's like 85 minutes of foreplay, yeah. five minutes of intercourse, <laughs> and then like a wave goodbye. <laughs> so, thank you very much. How do you do? <laughs> I ask myself some serious questions. I <laughs> Just gonna go have a cold son shower. Of, son Give of me a second, way, baby. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, I, to- I totally, I uh, totally do get that with, with that. Uh, I just, mm. I just think there's like that. There's so- it's something that I think not so much his earlier films. But I think particularly as he goes further down his nineties and becomes more of a studio comedy man, he struggles mm. with endings quite a bit. And I think mm. that slightly starts yeah. to wobble here. <laughs> Other than that, I'm with. It's a near perfect movie mm. for me. <laughs> Wash your mouth. <laughs> In terms of what you want a blockbuster to be, I do not see how they could be improved upon. This is the, the perfection. Not of the even formula. by a giant spider. Not even by a giant spider. <laughs> giant things, cockroaches. Close the giant enough. spider makes things remarkably worse. <laughs> Can we talk about? And there's no one better than Will Smith at this. Mm-hmm. The tie-in song. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> this far without God. bringing it up, actually. I was like, we cannot wrap this up without talking about the Stone Cold <laughs> Tying Banger. Absolutely. I and that was definitely the. I was more familiar with the song from like seeing it on Top of the Pops mm-hmm. uh, before I ever saw. When the he's film. dancing in the video with Mikey. Yeah, <laughs> which sucks because you see the video on top of the pops over and over again. You get to know Mikey as a good friend, and he's he's, he's, he's exploded. He's yeah. he's begooed within the first three minutes of this movie. It's, Mikey, uh, our friend. But uh, um, I, I I think that I I miss the days of the like you don't get it so much anymore. 
um, with a, no. the tie-in single, and particularly having your lead lead actor be the one responsible yeah. for your tie-in single. Yeah. Even Will Smith yeah. stopped it after Men in Black yeah. Two. I can't think of another song that he's done for a movie since. By Men the in way, Men in Black. Uh, no, well. I was thinking more of Wild Wild West. The movie sucks, Wild but the songs are That's a great song. That's a great song. Yeah. I also yeah, love like the Men in Black 2 song. What, which one's that? How does Black it go? Suits Coming. Nod your head. The Black Suits Coming. He was coming. singing it before oh, you came yes. on the call. He did coming. the entire thing. So you missed out. The Black Suit Shades and Clothes. I could go on. Please stop me, because I will. Where was the Harry Styles tie-in single for Don't Worry Darling? <laughs> you don't want that. <laughs> don't want Harry's that. people don't want that. I guess but Eminem no. he, with uh, he Eight Venom, Mile. Yeah. Oh, Venom. Yeah. 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 Venom. Venom. <laughs> well, uh, you know, the closest thing actually is, uh, wasn't it? Oh, my God. My mind is already melting. Uh, Lil Sims with oh, yeah, Venom. Although Venom they like re- they repurpose the song for the movie. Yeah. And then she's kind of in it performing it. And it's kind wow. of more PG. But also then, like, you know, even when they get Lady Gaga to do the song for, like, Top Gun Maverick, <laughs> it doesn't, like, it does not have the words Top Gun or Maverick no. in it. So it doesn't count. I want, my, I want my lyrics to describe the plot of the film that we just saw, please. Exactly. The 90s really were the sweet spot for this kind of tie-in. <laughs> yeah. The 90s really knew how to maximize brand, al- brand alignments, didn't yeah. they? There was, like, this is a perfect tie-in. Mm-hmm. The music We're from and inspired by. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you with two soundtrack albums. <laughs> and, and, and it's demonstrably worked because the three of us are now talking about this film yeah. with such abiding fondness I, that, for it. I, that song was huge. Mm. I could, like really remember it. Like that, it was number one for a long time at both uh, the single and the album. I think. Yeah. Um, and I also think, like, um, as we're on the kind of topic of music. This is like a top tier Danny Elfman score as well. Mm. That, oh that theme tune really is yeah. quite indelible to the whole mm. thing. Yeah, <laughs> really it's adds to the, the cool factor. Yeah, it just the laws are kind of weird. <laughs> and I think just the opening of this film establishes such a mood, and it is those opening mm-hmm. what is that, the, the double brace, the double bass strings, and then you mm-hmm. follow the bug, and it moves in time with the music, and oh, it's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. Love this score. It's so cool. Every time, um, every time I walk down a corridor at work through consecutive doors, double doors. I <laughs> right there with you, man. It's always sad when they're automatic. You're like, what? Oh. The, the, the amount of times I almost knock people out because I'm walking too forcefully because in my head. <laughs> Crikey. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so be, ca- yeah, be careful, Anna. Anna. <laughs> <laughs> Next time you're in the building. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, oh, I know what he's thinking. <laughs> what if I just like start humming? <laughs> oh, man. But there is like, you guys have mentioned it a couple of times, but there is something that I think just has aged so wonderfully in yeah. this movie. And it's the cool factor. It's cool. Like I know, it, I know it's 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 kind of difficult to define, right? But yeah. like, damn, this movie is cool. Yeah, like it's it's you know it's from '97, and you know the fashion has changed. A lot of things have changed, but like this film still rings cool. And yeah, I know, mm-hmm. like 
a lot of it might just be, you know, the Will Smith factor. He's at the peak of his charisma, the peak of his kind of stardom and powers. But he's not anymore. And still, you like, I watched this film last week. I was like, fuck, I miss yeah, Will Smith. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, a big Willie style. It's just, yeah. um, as so often happens with Amblin Productions, as we found during this journey, it's just a lightning in a bottle confluence of uh, of occurrences. Like, how did mm. that... If, if one thing in, in Back to the Future's pre-production was slightly different, the film would, would not work even half as well as it does. Similar kind of thing with this. There was so much going into it that could have derailed it at any point. Yeah, Clint Eastwood and Chris O'Donnell. <laughs> yeah. But the fact that, yeah, five weeks into production, Barry Sonnenfeld decided he wanted to completely overhaul the ending and, and stuff like that and making these decisions on the fly. Yeah. It's, they're, they're, like, they're kind of, they are decisions that similarly plague two and three and don't quite work yeah. out in the same mm-hmm. um, lightning in the bottle uh, situation. Because whilst I think this is still a very cool film, I don't think you could really describe any other film in this franchise as particularly cool. No. So they're a bit kind no. of like day glow and a bit... Very, a little, very a little <laughs> it's, like, it's like when your dad still quotes Dr. Evil. Uh, it's 2023. <laughs> Sorry, Dad, I do love you. <laughs> yeah. We, we talk about this a lot, but it's like when a, a corporation co-opts a, a viral meme in part, as part of its mm. marketing campaign and just immediately kills it mm. dead. That's kind of what these sequels feel like. But the, this film, it, it has this wry, above-it-all attitude that's neither off-putting nor forced feeling. It, it all seems very, very like a genuine somehow countercultural expression in the body of this yeah uh, huge temple blockbuster wearing it like mm-hmm. it's a skin suit <laughs> very, nice. very gracefully <laughs> makes it look good <sighs> goodness me i'm particularly whilst we have you and i'd be remiss not to ask you what your kind of thoughts on where the franchise has kind of gotten to now We've had those two direct sequels and we've had more of a kind of soft reboot. Oh, I forgot about that. Side cycle. Yeah, everyone does. <laughs> international. And now it feels like it's a little dead in the water after that one. Um, yeah. Is there, is there a future you can see for the MIB? Would you like a full-blown reboot? Or what's a, what to you is something that... Is there anything around, like, if a new Men in Black was announced tomorrow, what is it that you would like to kind of see in that approach? Well, it's it is a real shame, isn't it? Because mm. the first movie was so great, and then it was an animated series, which I, mm-hmm. I'll confess I've never seen. It's good. Um, I really like the second one. It's kind of fine, you know. It's watchable. That's the best thing I can say about it. Men in Black Three, I thought was just bad. Like it was terrible. It misused. I think Jermaine Clement is in it yeah. from Flight yeah, of the yeah. Concords. Men in Black International is just a complete misfire. I think that mm. was intended to be uh, a reboot of the entire franchise because yeah. on paper, the whole premise of it is so franchisable, mm-hmm, right? Yeah, absolutely. You can just You're replace the agents. Yeah, just like, you know, revitalize them, kind of bring occasionally kind of the OG ones. But like, you know, who is the original one? You, you can have this wild history of alien conspiracy mm-hmm. theories intertwined with like american politics you can go Absolutely, abroad yeah. it's like it's so rich and all we've got is like this 
tired attempt to recapture the magic of that chemistry and that connection between mm-hmm. Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones. They overcomplicate it in the sequel, I think, as too many yeah, named agreed. aliens, like very, yeah. uh, uh, you know, overwrought conspiracies from the aliens. Men in Black 3, the only good thing really is the... Um, the Josh Brolin imitation of Tommy Lee <laughs> <Yeah>, Jones. <laughs> I think that's he great. But again, you literally lose out on the magic, right? It's like, mm. oh, you remember that thing you loved from exactly, the first yeah, one? Yeah. yeah, we're not gonna give you that. Yeah. We're just gonna give you something entirely different. Yeah. That kind of smells a little bit yeah. like the thing you love, but it tastes very different. <laughs> and oh my god, what a waste to uh, what a waste with um Tessa Thompson and Chris Hemsworth for like two very charming, very funny uh, actors, very much at the peak of their popularity as well. What mm-hmm. the fuck is Men in Black International? <laughs> yeah. I could not tell you a single thing that happens in that film. I know Tessa and place. Chris are supposed to be in it. Who they play? Can't even tell you their initials. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, don't know what the plot of it is. They're, like, literally, the the mental space that this film occupies is just the title mm-hmm, yeah. that's all it is and i had to look it up to remind myself because <laughs> so, i knew oh, there yeah, was a happens. men in black movie <laughs> but what was the what was the subtitle and it's a great subtitle but i'm like what is this why did you take yeah. the most the like where did you take the office space mm-hmm. of men in black and make that the center of the franchise really mm-hmm. yeah it's just a waste but you know what if they rebooted this, mm. I think they should just do kind of, you know, go fresh. And it's like, it's yeah. Men in Black, it's new characters. It's the same world. You can even, like, have uh, Agent J and Agent K return if you need to. You can bring back Linda Fiorentino, yeah. goddammit. <laughs> you know? Denuralize her. But, yeah, but, like, you know, you, you want... I think the main thing is kind of charisma. Mm. It's mm-hmm. charisma. It's like, you know what? Give me Kiki Palmer. Ooh, Kiki Palmer is an Agent J. Yeah. Holy shit. Kiki Palmer facing the aliens? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yes. She already did it in Nope. And she was the best thing yeah. about Nope. Ooh, now we're cooking. <laughs> now we're cooking. Yes. I like that idea. Yeah, me too. And you know what? Why don't why don't we put some Jesse Plemons in there? Yeah. He's one of the one of the greatest actors of his Not generation. He, he could yeah. do something akin to Edgar the Bug, I think. He could, <laughs> he could <laughs> turn in something with that level of commitment. Oh, so in this fantasy Men in Black reboot, yeah. If you had to pick like a creature from mm. our you know planet, mm. that is like, oh, this is going to be kind of the central alien figure, like you know, like the bug. We're going to make this creature the okay. design. Mm alien you know villain focus which one would you pick like who would be the the big bad it's a very good question very good question trying to think what scares me (laughs) my mind for some reason went straight to crustacean i was thinking something i was was in a reptile oh wait oh interesting yeah Okay. Um, I had a Komodo dragon kind of come into my head. <laughs> Do you have one, Anna? I respect Komodo dragons, but they're powerful and scary. <laughs> <laughs> well, I... I thought about a worm, but then I'm like, but the Dune movies are doing uh, that already, so yeah. we can't do that. Yeah, they've got the Enterprise on the big worm, right? <laughs> what if we go like bear? Well, what if it's like this giant the furry thing? Bear monster. Maybe some kind yeah. of cocaine bear. <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> Why not? Why not? 
actually give it more cocaine than cocaine. Yeah. Let's see what happens. Stop giving that movie air. Who remembers that? <laughs> no one. The, the same the people about it as well. Christ. Oh yeah. Well, about you that. know. Well, that's the last grasp, isn't it? <laughs> How about yourself, Josh, as a man who also views this as a perfect movie? Would mm. you welcome news of a reboot? Yeah, yeah. It seems eminently franchisable. Not in, in sort of a, a, a cynical, we'd better drag out this IP way, but more like the world is very fertile and very fun. And it's, it's bonkers to me. Like this episode comes out uh, after uh, the sequel to a film that is inherently unsequelable. And yet that film manages to talking Jurassic Park managed to, to knock out sequels that do pretty well and succeed every now and then on their own terms, less so nowadays. But this is a world that is so, so revisitable. And it, it is insane that uh, they fall into this rut, like you say, Anna, of trying to recapture the lightning in the bottle instead of exploring new avenues. So yeah, I, mm-hmm. I, I, I agree. I'd very much welcome something that just took it in a whole new direction. Like, you know, like, um, like Matt Reeves, with, no, it wasn't Matt Reeves, was it? The uh, fellow who did the first Planet of the Apes reboot, Rupert Wyatt. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That Matt Reeves then took the mantle on on of. Mm. Yeah, something like that. Just, just, just take it and do something new and and you know, interesting with it, mm. as opposed to, oh, that thing that you liked thirty years ago. Let's do that again. <laughs> Remember this? Yeah. <laughs> Which is what filmmaking is now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll always have this, though. We will. We'll Always have Frank the Pug as well. It's the one recurring character of the entire yeah. franchise. Yeah. Is Frank the Pug in three? You see his portrait in three. I don't think he's actually in three. Maybe um, there's a puppy in the 60s. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, I I do agree. I would welcome a reboot. Um, but something that all the, all the sequels miss um, and none of them seem particularly too um, bothered with really addressing is just how kind of, and we've touched on it a lot in this conversation, just kind of how icky and tactile mm. and gooey and sticky and slimy and um, kind of disgusting this movie is. They need a bit of that edge back if they're ever yeah. going to do it again, I think. Because that's what really, I think, gives this film real kind of searing, uh, a searing quality to it because it's just so many tangible mm. Um, images that relate to its world building and and its characters in a way that you say is this kind of lightning in the bottle but could could only really been done by this guy at this point in his career on film in 97 with these two movie stars mm-hmm. at this time so it may be a, a a kind of a trophy you're you're always chasing and will never quite get hold of again yeah um but uh yeah it's a fantastic movie. Is there any other points that you two particularly would like to kind of touch on uh, with the Men in Black whilst we're all together? I think I think I could be here. I think I've exhausted <laughs> yeah. my my Men in Black repertoire. We've done very well out of it as well. So. <laughs> Uh, and thank you so much for joining us, Anna. It's been such a joy to have you for this episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you, you you've guys. Been, you've been so good that we've decided not to neuralize you. <laughs> 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 
so I get to keep the lovely memory of recording this podcast. <laughs> See, there was a, like a trapped balloon of gas and the, the light <laughs> Venus. <laughs> and uh, if our if our listeners should wish to follow you or uh, keep up with your latest works, where's the best place that they can find you? So you can find most of the things I do if you follow me on Twitter or Instagram. I'm at Anna Be Demented on both. Uh, my main thing right now is you can pre-order my book, Unlikable Female Characters, that women pop culture wants you to hate, wherever you get your books. And you can listen to the Final Girls podcast, which is my horror film history podcast, wherever you get your podcast. And if you are watching Succession, <laughs> along with the rest of the world, uh, you can listen to my Succession recap podcast that I do with my friend Mike over at The Successionistas. Perfect. <laughs> well, thank you so much again, Anna. It's been an absolute joy. And we'll see you down the, down the road. <laughs> This was extremely fun, guys. Thank you so much for having me. Our pleasure. Tommy Lee Jones. I'm going to count to three. He'll do it, Jeeves. One. I'm telling you, that man does not look stable. Two. He's always crazy. Why don't you get a massage or take a cruise? Three. Do you have any idea how much that stings? Will Smith. What the hell are you? Your world's going to end. In a new film from the director of The Addams Family and Get Shorty. Men in Black, protecting the Earth from the scum of the universe. You know how to use these things? No idea whatsoever. We'll do one more clap again. Three, two, one. A big thank you once again there to Anna Bogutskaya for joining us for our Men in Black conversation there. A delight to have her on the show. Truly a joy. Uh, make sure you check out a lot of her projects that yes. she's got going on from Final Girls Pod yes. to her recently released Dead by Dawn and Evil Dead yes. podcast. She's also one of the co-hosts of Succession Easters, which oh, ties fine. in a succession reference I made earlier, <laughs> which is why I did that. Yeah. And she also has her debut book out, Unlikable Female Characters, which is available for pre-order now and will be released in the UK yes. on June 9th. So By make all accounts, sure. a tremendous read. I'm very excited to read that. Yeah. <laughs> so make sure you check that out and uh, pop it in your basket. <laughs> There's a lot of work with the BFI as well. Lots of she recently curated the horror season there, which was uh, very exciting. Mm-hmm. So hang around South Bank, you'll doubtless uh, see her. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we very much appreciate Anna taking the time there. So thank you very much once again to you. Um, so we did put out our feelers, mm. as it were, for um, our tentacles, indeed. Um, but there was one other question I wanted to ask before we got into that. Mm. Um, did you, Josh Glenn? Go yes! Oh, <laughs> Universal <laughs> Studios? Florida. You bet I did. Was it Men in Black Alien Attack? Yeah, it was. <laughs> Which I believe is you go in a little car and yeah. you have a gun yeah. and you shoot Gotta at say, like, alien from the jump, From the jump, not my favourite ride format. Fair, fair. I went on a Buzz Lightyear one in Walt Disney yes, World. Yes, exactly. I had a good exactly. time on that because it had yeah, like the glasses and it was like... Pee-pee-pee. Yeah. Again, sorry to for listeners who may not know. Uh, the last few times we've touched on an Amblin film that has a theme park ride, 
yeah. we uh, turn Back to, to the future Twister, uh, Jurassic Etta, Park, ET, ET. Um, we we turn to our a uh, man on the ground circa <laughs> two thousand and two, three. When was it? <laughs> so I went. Yeah, six. Two thousand six. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. uh, yeah, our yeah. man on the theme park, Florida, Orlando grounds. I went at the Joshua perfect Glenn. time. I went at the time before. I went the first time I went. The Back to the Future ride was still intact. The second time I went, it became the Simpsons ride. So I went. That's I've been, right. I've been very lucky in that I've had every experience <laughs> as regards ambling rides. Um, I think of all the ones that we've covered so far, the ET one is is ultimately pretty lame. I'm trying to think the if there's another the one. Ones are, um, this might be um, it. I guess we're sort of growing out of the the theme park tie-in craze. Although, I mean, it's not relevant to us, but the uh, Tower of Terror in California, Disneyland, has recently become a Guardians that's, that's of the Galaxy. Guardians of the Galaxy right now. Which but, sounds kind of funny. Do I was going to say, this might be the last yeah, um, of, of Josh Glenn theme yeah. park yeah, man shit, on the ground right. report. Yeah. Well, unless we do our spin-off Ramblin-ish, and we'll do the mummy ride in that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, honey, I shrunk the kids. Uh, I went yeah. to the playground and the forty experience. Honey, we shrunk the audience. Honey, we shrunk the audience. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. No, I think you might be right. Back in my brain. I don't think there's other ambling ones. The Indiana Jones stunt show. Once uh, oh, the Dial of Destiny comes out, that was good. Yeah. I, that was the first. That was a slight tangent, but that was the first Indiana Jones thing I ever saw, and it was for after, the movies. Yeah, this was when I was seven, about to turn eight, and early 2001 and it was Damn. seeing that stunt show that i was like what is this and, my, <laughs> and then my dad just being like we'll watch them when we get <laughs> oh just, it gets better just like, oh it gets better <laughs> just a slight grin on his face being like i can introduce him to indiana <laughs> jones <laughs> that's my main i mean i don't have kids not in my immediate future but that's the main yeah so the yeah. The, the, the main uh, uh so have- motivating factor behind having kids would be to be able to open their eyes to like, share the experience Celluloid of watching loves. certain things for the first time like Men in Black but the uh, the ride was not fantastic although of the ambling crop it's probably probably it's the best <laughs> <laughs> the Back to the Future one was pretty sweet to be fair but um, I'm just gonna get Amblin Entertainment up on Wikipedia quick just to make sure we're not missing out on any anything last... big I mean Jurassic, the Jurassic World yeah was how was that though that's kind of like a log flume one, yeah the log flume rules is really really good the only one we didn't really touch on, there are two rides and you wouldn't have gone on them. Because there's Robert, Roger Rabbit's cartoon spin. I think I missed that. Which is in Mickey's Toontown in Tokyo Disneyland. Oh, I missed Tokyo. And the California Disneyland. And there's also Gremlins Invasion, which is a ride at Warner Brothers Movie World, which I believe is in Queensland. <laughs> right, right, right. A and, continent that I haven't been to. <laughs> and uh, I believe Germany also has a Warner Brothers uh, oh, really? park, or used to have a Warner Brothers park. Let's have a look here. Oh, German listeners. Warner Brothers email Movie World, in. Germany. <laughs> it, it, it ceased to be in 2004. <laughs> Before my international theme park, so good. So indeed, this shall be the last uh, <laughs> emblem ride, unless fine. unless one of us goes to California or Tokyo in the near future and go, does the Roger Rabbit's cartoon spin. Well, that could be a Patreon goal. <laughs> Tokyo or California? <laughs> what would you prefer? If we go to Anaheim. We can go to the Star Wars Galaxy's Edge thing as well. Uh, that could be fun. So tired of Star Wars culture. <laughs> that's fair. Tokyo as an overall experience will probably be yeah. I mean, give the world too, man, or Ghibli world. world rather. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. 
go to go do some nice nature walks outside the city. I'd like to get outside the city yeah. if I went to Japan, but um, yeah, <laughs> so not a great rush. <laughs> I mean, it's alright. Again, I've got a bias because you know I, I like a big swirly whirly roller coaster. Oh, it's a big swirly. Or I like coaster. towers that are terrifying. Mm-hmm. I never went on the um, Twilight Zone Tower of Terror. It's fantastic. We... Dude, it's, it's fantastic. Everything you can ever you remember. It was like it was directly opposite the Hollywood Rock and Roll Roller Coaster. Are you talking? Aerosmith. Rock and roll in roller Orlando coaster or... in Orlando. Yeah, it is. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Rock and roller coaster is pretty good. That was cool. And we went on that, and we got off it. And me and my sister was like, "Let's do the Tower of Terror." And both my parents looking a bit green in the gills. Yeah, like, yeah. No, yeah. no, we've done our one big ride today. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the whole thing, like the whole, the production design of of the whole, like even queuing up for the thing. That's cool. Yeah, it's and now. Now I'll never go on it. Everyone's Thanks, in. Oh, <laughs> No, thank you for taking me on that trip. It's a magic. It was a magical time. And I remember it very fondly. <laughs> Here's the parents. My dad for making me go see Men in Black. Your parents for taking you to Orlando. Orlando. And your parents for taking you to Orlando. <laughs> Here's the parents opening their kids' eyes to artistic wonders of the world. Indeed, indeed. Men in Black's so fucking good. It's dude. good. It's so good. And uh, as agreed by the one tweet we had in from uh, the Arch <laughs> yes. Paulie. Uh, level up poorly. Thank you, Paul. You've been our, you've been our guy for the past couple of weeks. Now this is a big one, he said, and he's right. It was a big or one. Girl so, could be a female Paul. Um, this one was top tier. Even if you strip it completely back and only watch the scene where Will Smith shoots the cut out of the girl in the head because she's the only intimidating character. Gold. Yeah. Fully agree. That kind of like yeah. it's just really smart writing and packages yeah. up exactly the world as until... as we will have just spoken about with yes. <laughs> there's a lot of moments like that doled out throughout the film and that's very much his save the cat moment yeah. like this guy exercises compassion hesitated <laughs> he isn't sneezing he's snarling no he isn't snarling he's, he's sneezing, sneezing. <laughs> but um we 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 hope you all have very fond thoughts of uh Men in Black because it's a it's yeah. a big it's a big rambling ambling favorite yeah. in this crop totally is and um, uh, former guest Rihanna Dillon was very uh, jealous indeed of, of, we uh, did speak about it but yes indeed her briefly on that episode former former guest Jack Buckley uh, mm-hmm. also is a big fan watched it recently agrees with me that it's perfect <laughs> and uh, was also jealous <laughs> <laughs> I spoke to previous guest Ollie Guthrie this weekend as well ah. and he he's also he was like. When I told him it was next, he's like, "Oh, you're in a good run. Yeah, you're yeah. in a good run. <laughs> it is just <sighs> you and watch it again." The good run now. continues, buddy. The good run continues. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is the best film is... we're going to be covering for about Ooh. five years of rambling time. That's my um, hot take. Okay, interesting. Because in a couple of films' time, we're getting to one which i think which i feel I think more is, about yeah, I, I know you in do. a similar case to men in black i'm a little less hot on that one but yeah. i'm excited to discuss it with you i think it's where i fall yeah, yes yeah, yeah, yeah. um but serious <laughs> with a couple of fingers <laughs> and a keyboard <laughs> can google it and find out what we're referring to but um, i'm sure listeners will know our predilections by now yes I mean, indeed that's quite indulgent to say that yeah, if yeah, anyone's yeah. listening to <laughs> All uh, of them. <laughs> You'll know if I'm a Men in Black guy, and he's very much uh, this other movie. Blank, kind of blank, <laughs> blank, blank. <laughs> Verbing. <laughs> noun, noun. Um, but um, before that, um, we do have one small mm. piece of business to attend to in our next episode, which will be the final 
Joe Dante Amblin movie, at least for the time being. Yeah. You hear us, Joe? Come back, Joe. We love Come you, Joe. For <laughs> uh, we shall be covering Joe Dante's 1998. Hang on, have I got a year here? Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> yeah. Only, t- only the two for 1998's Small Soldiers, featuring the voice talents of Tommy Lee Jones. <laughs> <laughs> also starring in a cameo, David Cross. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and also featuring the likes of Frank Langella, yeah. um, Phil Hartman, who's <laughs> oh. in this movie. The last great on-screen role of Phil I think Hartman. It's, I think it's dedicated to him. Uh, and then also <sighs> the voice cast of The Dirty Dozen. <sighs> And this Spinal is Spinal Tap. Tap. <laughs> we did not know how good we had it. <laughs> I'm very excited to check out Small Soldiers again. And if you would like to watch Small Soldiers along with us, it is available to view for those of you that have a Netflix or Amazon Prime subscription. Otherwise, you can rent or buy it digitally on Amazon, Apple TV, Google, Microsoft Store, Sky Store, and YouTube. If you've got any thoughts on a film, please do share them with us on Twitter by adding us at ramblinamblin or emailing us at ramblinaboutamblin at gmail.com. And while your device is in your hand, please do rate, subscribe, like us. And if you have time, leave a little review. We'd love Mm -hmm. to hear from you. Absolutely. So yes, dear listener, please do reach out if you have any thoughts on Joe Dante's Small Soldiers. We can't wait to get stuck into that little Mm. small town warfare and once again, pay uh, pay our good old pal Joe Dante a visit. Um, and we will be welcoming a couple of guests onto that episode as well. So it should be a fun time. It's going to be raucous. <laughs> it's going to be chaos. Um, and a big thank you once again to Anna for joining us for this episode on The Men in Black. Also a big thank you to Ed Solomon for writing. <laughs> He's been very for directing Men in Black. Thank you. Thank you Will to everyone Smith, involved Tommy in the making Jones. of... Wherever you are, you are fantastic. And uh, sorry that everything happened. <laughs> um, and we hope you do join us, dear listener, um, for our episode on Small Soldiers. Thank you for stopping by. Um, I have been Andy Godian. Do you know what the difference is between you and me? Do you make this look cool? I just think it's Good. a perfect movie. <laughs> I've been just going away. I just, I'm so in awe of this film. I'm going to go watch it again right now. I got, I'll help you with that. So now, Josh, if you would just like to look right here, like right in this little yeah. dot. Yeah. <laughs>